Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Safety Insurance, offering a variety of home insurance products to cover your home's increased value. You can ask an independent agent about safety insurance. Safety Insurance will help you manage life's storms. DCU is proud to sponsor this conversation from Boston Public Radio. More at dcu.org. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, live at the Boston Public Library, it's Friday. It took Marjorie only 10 minutes to drive to work because it's Friday and nobody's working. Should we make it a permanent thing? We'll ask you. Then it's Callie Crossley on Dr. Oz's Crudite Contretemps and Brian Stelter, media reporter at CNN, being given the axe. Retired federal judge Nancy Gertner on multiple investigations into Donald Trump and the indictment of three men for the prison murder of Irish mob boss Whitey Bulger. Then comedian Jesse Klein has a very funny new book, A Meditation on Middle Age and Motherhood. All that ahead on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. We are broadcasting live as we do every Tuesday and every Friday from the Boston Public Library, and we are streaming at youtube.com slash GBH News. We're happy to see people come down here to the library. Thank, Thank you, you all very for much. Coming. We really appreciate it. Uh, for, for being here. Hello, Jim. You're in a very good mood today. I am. Is that because it only took you 10 minutes to drive to work? Well, it's Friday. It? It's Friday. Know, exactly. It's Friday. And, and it's a particularly good Friday because I've noticed that uh, nobody else seems to be in the office on Friday, Jim. Exactly. So it is a Friday in August, which means if you're at the office right now listening to the show and are worried a co-worker or your boss might catch you slacking off, don't worry because no one else is there. Now with the Orange Line shutting down, Office Fridays are about to be a whole lot quieter. That starts, as you know, tonight at 9 o'clock if you spent the last two weeks under a rock. Roman the show asking, is the already silent Office Friday a sign that Americans are taking the four-day work week seriously and into their own hands. Is that a good thing? Will it continue beyond the dog days of summer into dreaded September? And could Fridays off be the solution to not just our coming uh, tea traffic nightmares, but a solution, Marjorie, I hate to be think this bit, to a happier life, and I'd say yes. If you're off at, this, at the office this Friday, what's wrong with you? Give us a call. We want to help. And if you're not... Explain to us how good it feels. The number is 877-301-8970, and that is for texting or calling. As you know, Marjorie, since I met you a quarter of a century ago, we started on the radio, I've been campaigning for the four-day work week. I, well, apparently it's coming, Jim. Well, I mean, you read these stories? It I is did. coming in some, in some places because they've realized no one's going to show up anymore on Friday, and it's kind of a neat reversal. What do you mean? Usually it was the boss who was off at yeah, his second home, right. you know, tanning on the, on, the, on the second porch in his second home, or he was at the beach somewhere. Now, because the bosses are trying to get everybody else to come into work, they feel know, obligated to get all dressed up, suit and tie, go into the office and sit there virtually by themselves because everybody else is at the beach instead of the boss. Well, you know, the pandemic obviously convinced uh, employers in particular that a lot of things that were impossible, remote work, at least part-time, more, more remote work hybrids, uh, uh, Fridays off. Do what, that statistic we saw this morning, only 31% of people 
clock in, go to work on a Friday to begin with. So it's a, the de facto situation is people aren't working. And you add to the fact that additional spur, hopefully only for a month, is the closing of the orange line and part of the green line come Monday. It's just it's time to just do the damn thing. And I, I think we know it can work. It's not. And by the way, we know we're going to get calls at 877-301-8970. Obviously, somebody has to work on a Friday. And if you have to work on a Friday because it's a business or an enterprise like a retail store or a hospital, then the answer is you get another day off. We're talking about as a general proposition, is it not time? And by the way, you, how, you were like exuberant over the fact that it took you such a short period of time, <laughs> seriously, to drive to the library today. And it's all because it's a Friday. Well, because people are not, they may be working from home, but they're not working from the office, because usually it takes me like 20 minutes to get here because of traffic on Beacon Street. Uh-huh. And of course, we're always following the, the MBTA buses because the green line on and off is not in service, so they get the buses there in the, in the, in the bus line. But today, Friday, it, it took me like 10 minutes. I couldn't believe it. I flew all the way to, to work. It's a beautiful and it story, actually. Minutes. And I asked Mike over at the Lenox Hotel where we park our cars. Who's the one, and the I, one of I'll the lead door guys. I'll be chastised. I, of course, should be taking the tea. I know everybody's going to tell me I should be taking the tea to work instead of driving. Well, uh, I am an imperfect person, and I drove to work. But well, You didn't finish your thought. What did Mike at the door at the Lenox It said Friday's really off. You, you notice that people are not coming to town like they used to on Fridays. They're not coming uh, to park cars because they do a lot of parking for people that are not staying at the Lenox necessarily. They're just coming into town. Well, that's because they're doormen. They're doormen. That yes, is correct. And by the way, they're all men, so don't like uh, send me an angry and, note. They're doormen. And they're yes. great, actually. I love they're, the they're fabulous at the people. Lennox. We, I feel close to the doormen at the Lennox after all these years. Tell, the, case, tell the real reason. It's not just because they're nice people. They're good looking. I mean, very good Marjorie, looking. as very she admits, looking. is superficial. <laughs> and they are a good looking Listen, bunch across I've fended inquiries about the status of some of the doormen over there at and the Lennox. I don't want to know what's going on with the mm-hmm. doormen. And alas, I think that they're all taken. But in any case, the laws, last LAZ parking thing that runs yeah. that big parking operation, yeah, yeah. they're saying the same thing. Mondays and Fridays, in terms of people coming into cities, not just here, but all over the country, to park, it's not happening. You know why I'm smiling at you like this? Why? Of the 25 years, 24, whatever it is we've been on the radio. This is 1999, many, Jim. So 23, whatever. How many of those 23 years would you say you were against my idea to have a four-day work week? Would you say like 21 of them? Probably. Okay. So, <laughs> Isn't it amazing how you come around? Thank you for the credit for uh, being a a revolutionary thinker and a creative thinker. It is about time. 877-301-8970. People are happier. Incidentally, all of the data, all of the research shows that people are more productive when they know that they're going to have an extra day to either have fun, do errands that they have to try to squeeze in, or whatever the hell it is that people do. 877-301-8970. 8970. Molly in a car, you're first on Boston Public Radio. We're live at the Boston Public Library. Hey, Molly. Hi, how's it going? Excellent. Fine, thanks. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So I just wanted to say that I work for Indeed, and I work a five day week remotely, but we get at one Friday off every month. It's called a U day. So the whole company shuts down. Every employee gets to take the day off. And it's really nice. It helps to facilitate that work-life balance. So it's awesome that Indeed does that. Um, and I also want to say my boyfriend works a four-day week, and he loves it. He never wants to go back to a five-day week. By the way, how does, it, how does getting – did you work at Indeed before they had the, this U day thing, or were you there only since it happened? No, so I've been there since it happened. They introduced the U-Day um, during, you know, 2020, during I the see. pandemic. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. So they've continued it since then, though, and they've really foster a good um, remote environment, too. Is there any downside to it for those who are on the other side, like Marjorie used to be, or no? <laughs> Is there? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, my boyfriend loves his four-day work week. I just think, like, the 10-hour days can get a little intense for him, but he still likes to have that extra day off. That's, I'm so with you. Uh, Molly, thanks for calling. Are you going to make a disclosure about your personal interest and what Molly had to One say? One of my kids works in Indeed. And it's, it's my son. Does it's he great, talk about it's, the it's great company. Thing? Yeah, but he's one of the people because he lives in New York and they have oh. this great office in New York with all these, you, you know, you look out in the skyline. I thought he never porches. goes in, you told me. Well, he misses it. He misses it. Oh, that he does? oh he misses it. Yeah, he, he doesn't he, go he, in. He likes being at home a few days a week, but he does like to well, go in and see Well, he's a sociable kind of kid, too. And um, so he's, he misses it a little bit. But they are going. But that's the problem. One of the good things about having a four-day work week or mm. one of the things that's great about nobody going into work on Monday and Friday, let everybody come in on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Then they can see each other and mix and mingle and all that kind of stuff. How much would you like a U-Day, to quote I think Molly. a U-Day I think a U-Day is an excellent thing. You know what they else they do it indeed? No, I do not. They feed people. Well, but that's, a, that's, sca- but no, that's a, big a sca- thing. No, it's not a big thing. The it's reason they feed people is because they want them to work longer hours. They figure they can get you on the cheap. But that's like those high-tech firms that have the sleeping pods you know, and all the on. free food. How much would you like it if we I, had lunch, lunches every day at GBH? I'd love it. Yeah, remember we did that during the pandemic. We did? Yeah, we, oh, we did. lunches that's every right, day. We did. That was we very, did. very well, exciting. Well, we couldn't go out anyway because we worked during lunch. That's right. But it was a high point for you to have those lunches come in, Jim. Of course it was. You, you know why? Free. That was a huge part of it. But th- we don't, it doesn't apply to us because we didn't have a choice. We couldn't go out. Don't you think it's a lot healthier if someone's got a lunch break to actually go out in the world and experience the world a little bit, have a re- little relaxing time, that kind of thing? Yes, no, what? Well, that's true. Thank uh, you. That's, that's very true. Uh, Beth in Boston says she comes into the office every Friday specifically because nobody else comes in and she likes the peace and the quiet. And by the way, that is one of the strategies that companies are using to get people to come back. Well, they have ice cream trucks and oh, karaoke know, know. and happy hours and tacos and all this free food and free uh, liquor. Can I tell you something? You raised something. I have to be honest about this. Well, that, I've Jim? always been for the four-day work week. The mm-hmm. one thing that convinced me that a five-day work week is better is what you just mentioned. If there was karaoke on Friday at work... <laughs> The notion that I could sing with my coworkers would be such a draw for me. It's incredible. Amber from Worcester says, I'm not at the office because five people on my floor have COVID. And <laughs> my neighbor and friend forbid me from going in. So she likes working from home better. But COVID is still out there, unfortunately. Tina from Boston, thank you for calling. Hey, Tina. I think um, the whole world would have to shut down in order for my firm to not have this come in on Friday. Oh, Tina. firm. And, Jim, as you know, there's a lot of deadlines in a law firm. Yeah, we do. I do. I do. Yes. So um, that's a no-go here. Uh, but I do agree that um, I take the commuter rail from Braintree, and um, the traffic is a lot lighter, and you can actually get a seat on Fridays. It but, is, Tina, can we, talk, noticeable. can we talk law firms for a minute? As I said... The law firm is in this Wall Street Journal story. What does it say? Well, the, the partner is uh, sitting in his office all by himself uh, because this law firm only has a quarter of the people showing up. He's got 120 lawyers that work there, and uh, 75% of them are working from home. Well, Tina, that's exactly what I was going to say. Even if there are deadlines for lawyers and paralegals and such at a law firm... Why can't it be on a rotating basis where somebody like you takes off one Friday and then the next Friday somebody else takes? I mean, it can be accommodated, no? Well, it can, but when there's only one person who does each position. Well, that's a good point. Uh, you mean yeah, in a small law office, yeah. That's yeah, a body is needed for, to get the mail and 
you know, someone might need their computer restarted and so I think you should just consider like defaulting in the proceeding and take the Friday off. <laughs> oh, Tina, well, thank hold you. On, for, Tina, oh, hold on, Tina. I want to let you know that this law firm is in Boston. It's K and, uh, K and L. Gates in K Boston. Gates. You know it? I do, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, 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 so that's yeah. probably why they can do that. Oh. Yeah, th- that's, why, that's where the, uh, the chairman of K and L. Gates is sitting in the office. By himself. Basically by himself. <laughs> Hey, Tina, thank you for your call. We appreciate it. We hope you get that Friday off at some point. 877-301-8970. I'm sorry. He says he's very lonely, the uh, chairman of KLK sitting in the office all by himself. Maybe he'll call us up. How would we do a four-day work week? Uh, Adrian from Illinois says, I'm all for a four-day work week, but how would it affect Boston Public Radio. That's a very good point. It's, it's sort of a little point. difficult. But you know, we t- well, I work from home more than you. I work from home at least two I'm days a week. I'm not talking work from home. I'm talking about not working. Well, but even working from home is a much different thing than coming into the office and working. You have to get your lunch ready. You have to pack it. You have to get dressed. You have to put your makeup mm. on to fix your hair. I mean, you can have, you know, you can go for days without showers if you're working from home. No, that's Jim. a beautiful thing. And also, Marjorie, it's pretty clear. I have faithful listeners to the show. Marjorie's a lot more comfortable doing the work when she's wearing an apron. Exactly. That, that is, exactly. Gets that, me into the that's working what it does mode. For you, it's fine with me. Derek from Weymouth, thank you for calling. Hello, Derek. Hey, how you doing? Excellent. Um, a couple things. A couple things. Um, this part's obvious, but it depends on the job. Yes. Right? My wife yep. works retail, so if, if nobody's at the store, the store's not open. That's a good you point. Do it that way. Uh, but I'm in the wine business, uh, wine distribution and importing. So we have delivery drivers that have to be on the job. Otherwise, customers don't get their product. But for me personally, like I'm on a personal day right now. I had to take a day off because I couldn't get childcare for the day. Oh. Uh, but then I realized I'm sitting here in front of the laptop still working. So did I need to take a personal day off or not? You know, it kind of depends on what, what you what your expectation is. My boss is one of those respond to every email depending on no matter what time it is, you know, That's unfortunate. ATM respond to the email sort of thing. So maybe the four day work week is a good trade for the always on culture. Yeah, but Derek, don't go away. If you're doing the wine thing and you say, you know, people expect deliveries. If they all had, adv- I don't know the business, obviously I just know the consumption of it. It, it. Couldn't there be an accommodation with a little bit of planning that would allow the retailers who are served to get what they need when they need it and allow people not to work that fifth day? Well, sure. I mean, you can definitely reduce um, delivery days, but, you know, then you've got to cover so much territory in, in fewer days, which becomes challenging. Um, Understood. But, but you, you know, know, let me just tell you one thing. The one thing that is, yeah. there are a lot of, there, there are two different kinds of four-day work week. There's a compressed work week, as it's called by the experts, which means you squeeze 40 hours into 32, and that's what I think you're talking about, longer days. And most people who do it, by the way, say as hard as it is at first, they prefer that to work in the fifth day. And a lot of businesses feel that they can not compress it, but rather just do 32 hours because productivity goes up because people feel so good about the extra day. Derek, thanks for the call. We appreciate it. Listen to this. This is from Michael in Cambridge who says, I have a 90-80 schedule. That means I do 80 hours in nine work days with every other Friday off. Could compromise between four and five day work week without having to do 10 hour days. I've never heard of that before. That's a really clever idea. You know what? You know my attitude? I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say. Yeah. Um, 
uh, we have an email from someone else who has a thing for the dormant at the Lennox. She says they get my daughter, who's got some health issues, in and out of the building. We always stay there. They're so gracious and wonderful. And both my daughter and I think they're handsome, too. Well, they are good. So those people are as superficial as you are. When we leave. <laughs> the, uh, you know, let me just tell you, say before we take a break here, for those who in good faith say there are reasons why this can't be done, my, I don't have all the answers, needless to say, but except one answer that matters most. Two and a half years ago, could offices in America go hybrid? The answer is absolutely no. no. It would destroy business in America. It would never work. Does it work? It works. It works. So the answer is four-day work week, work week so we work too. Yeah, we're very averse to changing things up. We are. I've noticed that. I noticed that particularly when I talk about heat pumps, Jim. I get a lot of resistance to heat pumps because it's a change in what people normally do. Anyway, we're talking about it, nobody working on Fridays anymore, at least not from the office. And is that great? Is it not great? And what about Jim's famous crusade for the four-day work week? Our number is 877-301-8970. You can text or call us at that number. We are broadcasting live from the Boston Public Library. Boston Public Radio. She's Marjorie, and I am Jim Browdy. We are streaming live at the Boston Public Library, streaming at youtube.com slash GBH News. The inspiration for this uh, discussion with you about uh, formalizing Friday not being a work day, and except in limited circumstances when you just can't pull it together, was Marjorie getting to work in 10 minutes and her uh, raving about it, because that's about half the time it would take you on yep. any other day yep. to get to the Boston yep. Public Library. Here is a texter who doesn't sign it who says it perfectly. Four-day work week is long overdue with the proliferation of two working parent families. We need the extra day to attend a life task so that we can actually enjoy the week and recharge as we need to. It's impossible to squeeze all the socializing, errands, bills, doctor's appointments, and administration we need to do outside of work in the just two days. Shouldn't this be the goal of societal progress to work less instead of more? Beautifully put, whoever sent that thing in. Who is the guy that said we were going to be working three hours? I can't believe you said it. Was just the uh, uh, was a famous economist, wasn't Keys. it? Keynes. 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 Was it Keynes? K-E-Y-N-E-S. Yes, yeah. I'm not economist. sure if it was him, but it was some I famous think it was, economist and he predicted, who said in 20 years yeah, or something. Yeah, work three hours a day. Three hours a day. That yeah. hasn't exactly happened. Well, we happened. work three hours a day, so I guess he was well, right about us. But we're, we're, well, we're not really working just we're three not? hours a day. No, I don't think so, Jim. Yeah, you call this work, I think, as most people. You just <laughs> talk. You turn on the microphones, you just talk for three hours. What's the big deal? Debbie and Boxford, she's a farmer. She says, as a farmer who hasn't had day of it over a month yeah, and having a hard that. time feeling sorry for people having to work five days a week. There are no four-day work weeks for farmers, and that is true. That is a really When was the last time you job. were a farmer? I have never been a farmer, but I would not want to have to get up at the crack of dawn every single day to feed the animals. That would be that would be a very difficult thing to do, especially in the wintertime. Caitlin in Providence, you were... Oh, you're going to give the number? I was going to give the number, but go ahead. Caitlin in Providence, you were next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you for calling in. Hi. Hi, um, thank you. I, thank you. So I am pro four-day work week, but um, the issue that runs with where I work, um, so during the summer, we, we have a four-day work week. We yeah. get Fridays off. Um, but the problem is that even in non-summer times, we don't have enough staff to do the work we're already doing. Well, that's So then in the summer, when you're, you're still expected to do essentially 40 hours of week and 40 hours of work in four days, 
and you're understaffed. I think the, the issue with the four-day work week is you have to make sure there's an appropriate level of staff to get the work done because otherwise those four days you're are right. so hectic and insane that I need the Friday to collapse essentially. So does your boss know uh, that uh, that's the state of affairs that you're describing there, Caitlin, or is he or she uh, oblivious? Uh, no, they're aware. They just don't seem to care. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> Having said that, as torturous as the 40 hours is, and I totally get that, how fabulous is it when you're done Thursday, those extra two hours, when you know you have a three-day weekend instead of a two-day weekend? It is really nice, especially to be able to either like plan weekend travel yep. or um, go to the beach. Um, so, so stuff like that, it, it is really nice. Caitlin, thanks for your contribution to the discussion. We appreciate it. We have an email from a teacher who says, I've always wondered how people would conceive of the four-day work week for teachers. Presumably, people would still want their kids in school five days a week. Mm. And alas, the teacher is right about that. I mean, teachers are going to get screwed on this. Anybody who's going to actually show well, up. No. Retail, teachers, no, you can't no. have a four-day work week. No, the solution no. for the teachers yep. is the solution your favorite governor, Governor DeSantis. Isn't he having felons teaching in the schools <laughs> or like some odd group of people are now teaching in the schools because he hates the teachers and in, I don't uh, know. because of the don't say gay deal. I don't know. You know, people uh, that are uh, bemoaning Donald Trump running again. If he doesn't run, you know who we're going to get. Oh, yeah, I know. You, I know you say that every day. Be Ron a little more positive. DeSantis. It could be somebody you're really crazy about, like Mike Pence instead. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I don't think so. Uh, who just said, can Americans get any lazier? This is why China is cleaning our yeah. clock. We're not lazy. What are you talking about? Other countries, like the Germans, who have a great economy, they're hardly working at all over yeah. there. Don't how they do, have like, do you know that, great Marjorie? swaths of the summer off? They do. They have, they, well, they Western do. Europeans have yeah. a lot of time off. Yeah, they, so they take I, off August, for example. They take off August. Some would argue we take off August, as a matter of fact, when they listen to the shows. <laughs> in any case, I think it was our boss who said that. <laughs> Kaylee, no, she didn't. Kaylee in Providence. <laughs> did we just talk to you or no? Kaylee, hi. No. Hello. Hi. I'm hi. I'm a different person. Oh, perfect. Nice so, to talk to you. What's up? I'm calling you guys from the middle of my Friday off. I work a compressed schedule. Great. I'm a therapist who works 9 a.m. to 7 p.m., Monday through Friday, or I'm sorry, Monday through Thursday. Yep. And yep. it gives me time to do my errands, get my doctor's appointments done, but it also provides my patients with time flexibility. Yeah. That's a great point. That is a great point. So, uh, Kayla, you're the perfect person to call, not only because you like a four-day work week, but because you're a therapist. What does this do for your patient? I assume you have some patients who do four-day work weeks. And assuming that's the case, what's that do to their state of mind, to their mental health? How does it suit them? Well, I think it allows an extra day for people to get their health care needs met. That's a good point, too. Think of all the times you put off going to the dentist, to the doctor, because you just don't have time in your five-day week. I, I, listen, I am with you, and I'm really glad it's worked for you, and thank you for the call. Now, you've had an issue with that, except you often go to the doctor on the wrong day. So the issue, <laughs> is that true or is that not true? A few times I've made it. Times, I'm a little yeah. disorganized, Jim. Yes, As yes. you know, I'm a little disorganized. Um, uh, but I think in general we're getting, I'm just looking at the emails, we're getting overwhelming support for the four-day week. And a couple of other people, including someone who worked for National Geographic, do this nine-day, 80 yeah, I, I know. I mean, I never heard of that. Oh, I have. Yeah, I mean, isn't that something we should be thinking about too? Yeah, I think it's a well. You know, there are also this is a variation of a theme. You know, like firefighters work like 
three days in nurses, nurses, nurses do that kind of thing. Yep. Flight attendants yep. often do that uh, kind of thing. So they're weird. You know, by the way, if you look at these texts, and there are a ton of them, there are almost nobody who's against it. There's some people who think it's going to be impossible to work out, but conceptually, every, almost everybody loves the notion of having that Friday off since most of us are taking it anyway. No? Amy in Cambridge, what do you think? Hi, Amy. Hi, I'm calling in about remote work. Yeah. I work in a Boston law firm, yeah. and I'm usually the only person in the office. And I find it incredibly depressing because, first of all, we hired like three or four new lawyers recently. I hardly have met them because yeah. they're all working at <laughs> Don't get me started. Yep, <laughs> I'm with lost, you. We've lost all the camaraderie that we used to have in the firm. You know, we used to have lunch together. We had last Friday of the month, we had Pizza Friday, and all of that is gone. And I just think it's so sad. And Boston, downtown Boston, is like a ghost town. Yeah, yeah. but Amy, Amy, you're, that isn't the problem taking off Friday. It's a problem and nobody comes to work. You could have pizza right. Thursday instead of pizza <laughs> Friday. So take off Friday. No. That's a whole other issue. Is, and by right. the way, you are exactly. so right. Not only no camaraderie, but the thing that's driven me nuts, young people don't understand how much they're missing through the mentorship, that person-to-person, physical presence kind of learning from someone who's more experienced is. And it's, so I am totally with you, Amy. Amy, thank you for the call. Speaking of uh, uh, nobody coming to o- the office downtown, this is from Julie Amesbury, who's a bartender in the financial district. She says there's a noticeable drop-off in business on Mondays and Fridays. People are working from home. But Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays feel like New Year's Eve. The blueprint has been in place for weeks, and I think it's going to stick around. Well, by the way, the numbers we gave a couple of minutes ago, a story we read a couple of weeks ago, 31%. Is this Boston or nationally? I can't remember. 31% of people show up at the office on a Friday. The second fewest is Monday, 40%. Yep. And uh, I think Tuesday is, which makes sense, the biggest day. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday are bigger. Obviously, that's the uh, deal. You looking for that thing? I I can't find it. I don't know if it was Boston or National, but I know what you're talking about. I mean, the the basic thing is people who work on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday in the office, if they are, and taking Mondays and Fridays at home or not working at all. And isn't that the way it should be, really? I mean, you can't. What's going to cause a revolution is if bosses say, so-and-so has to come in on Friday, so-and-so has to come in on Thursday. You know what I mean? Nobody wants to come in on Monday and Friday, right? You know, a couple of people who are a major Elon Musk, isn't, isn't Musk saying he's demanding that Tesla employees do yeah. a five-day deal or get fired or something? Well, such he's thing. not the most regular guy, He's an he? odd guy. He is an odd, fairly he's an odd, odd guy. Person. John from Boston, thank you for calling. Hey, John, what's up? Hi, guys. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you. I'm so glad. You guys took my call right after uh, the last caller. Why? Um, For those of us who are over 30, yes, we're going to miss the whole, you know, Friday pizza thing and everything. But come on, guys, let's be honest. We're really going to take, you know, oh, a pizza party just because we're sacrificing more time away from our family. (laughs) Come on. Let's not get bought up by pizza. It's a $10, $20 pizza. Come on. Well, that was, but John, in all fairness, that was not her point. Her point was she wasn't really talking about the Friday deal. She was talking about the lack of camaraderie and no one being there. So the social interaction thing was missing. Do you not miss that when you're not at the office or no? Or you don't like your coworkers? (laughs) Well, (laughs) John hates his coworkers. I'm I'm a. I'm a truck driver, so my coworkers is everybody on the road. (laughs) Okay. On the road. Hey, John. well, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go getting ahead. back on point, getting back on point, in South America, in South America the, um, the norm is to work, you know, nine to ten hours a day. And these people work from Monday to Saturday. <clears throat> so they, they, get, they only get, like, Sunday off. Mm. 
And if that was the point, you know, South America would be like a, you know, one of the uh, richest continents in the world. But wonderful not. point. Yeah, that's so a this, great point. This, this whole notion of people being lazy and making money—that doesn't really work. It works for the top people. It doesn't work for the for the uh, workers. Well, you know, I said, John, now, thanks uh, for the call. I said at the beginning, all the studies I've ever seen about compressed weeks or shortened work weeks the uh, uh, productivity actually goes up because people are excited. More enthusiastic. About. By the way, Paul from Worcester has a really interesting idea. Well, we're talking about the four-day work week. He says the state legislature is looking at having a four-month work year. <laughs> and they're close, actually. They're at seven months they are close. now. And uh, you they never know where they could uh, end up. But you know what you're talking about, young people? I think it's, it's the mentorship you mentioned, but it's also the fact that if you're just out of college and you move to a different town for a new job and nobody goes to work anymore... Where do you meet your friends to go out partying with? You know what I mean? You're kind of in your little rabbit hole of an apartment, and no one's going to the office. That's the pe- I remember there was a story about the kid that came to Boston to work for Citizens Bank. Oh, it was in the Globe. That was a it great was in the story. Globe, and yeah. he was like 22. He came great. from, I don't know, the Midwest, or he came from far away. And he had no friends because where was he going to meet people? I guess Well, the pot cafes are going to be opening soon, as the governor the told us cafes. yesterday. That'll but be remember, it was during the pandemic, right? So you couldn't really go to the gym. You couldn't really you know, go to a bar. Totally you couldn't it. go to a restaurant. So he's just sitting there twiddling his thumbs all alone, Jim. It was a very sad very story. Very sad. Very sad retelling by you, too. It was. Way. Well, I felt really bad. For so Marjorie, after 22 years of uh, resistance, has 23 come around. 23 years, Jim. You keep forgetting. 23. 1999 is when we started. Whatever. I started first. You did I got hired first. first. No, Marjorie, this whole thing, <laughs> by the way, you've never missed an opportunity. It is true. Marjorie was hired first. That's and right. they tried out every single man in Boston. And I was the last yep. man standing. And so, and that no, pretty much is close to true. And I don't want to go too far down this. this no, go right ahead. Go but, ahead. But as you may recall, mm. I got a talk show on NECN before you got a talk show on NECN. Yeah, you lasted two shows, one. actually. Do well, you remember I that? I quit. I yeah. quit. I quit. That's what they all say, Marjorie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And then when Jim's show was failing, he decided he needed a woman co-host. I wouldn't say it was failing. The viewership was down a little bit on NECN in the okay. early days, and Marjorie did come in to uh, Okay, okay. We're moving on. The quality talk- of the show didn't improve, but the <laughs> ratings, I have, they did improve slightly. Okay. We're going to talk with... If you haven't heard about this, this is one of the great stories of the week. Doctor Oz and the crudite catastrophe. GBH Callie Crossy is the woman to take us into the (laughs) details of this horrific tale, and we're going to talk about that and the Queen of Christmas and Mariah Carey and a bunch of other stuff. Callie's next. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, eighty-nine-seven GBH. Back to Boston Public Radio. I'm uh, Jim Browdy, and uh, she is Marjorie. I have two quick things to say. One, the Marjorie sandwich today from the Newsfeed Cafe Very is good. not just exquisite; it's really it is good, spectacular. Yeah, I you had prefer one the for heated or the cold variety? Well, I haven't had the cold variety yet. We did one half heated and one half cold, but the heated so one is really, okay. really good. Let me know. Really Secondly, yeah. our next guest, who shall not be named for a couple of seconds, <laughs> after I talk about the absence of mentoring for the young people, walks over to me during the break and says, and I quote. Who the hell are you mentoring? Thank you very much. That would be Callie Crossley. 
Joining us now, are you applauding the line or Callie Crossley? Both. Thank you very much. Callie is the host of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, which you can catch Sunday nights right here on 89.7 at 6 o'clock. Who the hell are you mentoring? She's also the host of Basic Black, which airs Friday at 7.30. Callie, it's great to see you, I think. Hi, Jim. Hi, Mark. Hey, yeah, she's put us to shame on the mentoring front, Jim. Well, I hate to say it. I'm, well, not, I'm I, not very good either. What can I tell you? I am Callie Mentor Crossley. No, you are. In all seriousness, you are. You deserve that credit. You do. Yeah. Okay. I mentored Marjorie for many years. That's how I mentored. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Didn't work out too that's well, but it wasn't everybody. for lack of effort. You know? Okay. 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 So, okay. so my favorite story of the week, oh. barring none, is the Dr. Oz caper when he's down at the uh, uh, Wegner's, as he called it, supermarket. It was kind of a cross, I guess, between Wegmans and Regner's or whatever it is down there, Redner's, wherever the place he works. Um, should, we, should we start with the sound? Yeah, let's do it. To just oh, get everybody goodness. in the mood. Yeah. Okay. Here is Dr. Oz who told you all these things that weren't true in his TV show, who now, who is now viral Twitter video, this is his viral Twitter video, in which, while trying to show how outrageously priced his crudité ingredients are, he calls the grocery store Wegmans, it was, it was Regner's, I think, wasn't it? Yes. Anyway, anyway, he gets the grocery store name wrong, and then he goes on and on and on about crudités. I thought I'd do some grocery shopping. I'm at Wegner's, and I, my wife wants some vegetables for crudite, right? So here's a broccoli. That's two bucks. Not a ton of broccoli there. There's some asparagus. That's $4. I mean, that's outrageous. We got Joe Biden to thank for this. What happened with Wegmans and Wegner? Can you explain that to them? Yeah, I was exhausted. <laughs> when you're campaigning 18 hours a day, you've, listen, I've gotten my kids' names wrong as well. I don't think that's... Uh, a measure of someone's ability to lead the Commonwealth. By the way, that was his, we should make clear, he's running, for those who don't know, he's running, he's a Republican nominee for the Senate in Pennsylvania. He essentially lives in New Jersey and hasn't campaigned, forget 18 hours, almost uh, not at all. And he was uh, defending his behavior on Newsmax there at the end. And the theory, Kelly, is <laughs> he was going to show how he understood the common man and woman in America by talking about crudite at Regnum's. Is that not true? That is correct. So where did it fall apart? <laughs> well, it fell apart. It wasn't Wegmans. It was a, a store called Redner's. So yes. he m- m- messed that up at the beginning. It fell apart when he said crudite, and everybody's like, okay. Then he said it was doing it for his wife. It fell apart when he said, look at how r- outrageously priced um, broccoli is or whatever he was saying, failing to understand it was a pound uh, per pound and not per bro- broccoli stalk, which I guess maybe he thought it was vis-a-vis his caterers on a regular basis. And, you know, I am not a person that, you know, you got money, enjoy it. Um, just be real with it. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't with have you. a problem with your standing in the grocery store saying this may not be an issue for me in real life, but it is a real issue for folks. And here's what I know. Here's what I've, I've investigated and know about what the prices are and how they've gone up. Okay, fine, Dr. Oz, got no problem with you. Got to give it to Fetterman, his opponent in this, his Democratic opponent, John Fetterman said. In um, uh, Pennsylvania, we call it a veggie tray. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. that is a line worth repeating. Yeah. That's a T-shirt, by the way. Well, you know, uh, Marjorie and I both love Mike Dukakis, but he had a similar kind of experience, even though he wasn't being phony. Mm-hmm. He was in Iowa when he was yes. running for president in 1988, and he was talking about some crop failures in Iowa, and he said they should do crop rotation. 
and the thing they should rotate it with. What was it called? I rota- think it was Benjen- Belgian, Belgian endive. Belgian That's what it was. <laughs> yes. And Belgian endive was considered a little effete by yes. the people of right. Iowa, and he took a lot of heat. But he was being legit. This right. is a totally faux persona. Totally. As you say, as, a, as opposed to acknowledging I've been very successful in life, etc. And he's running against the guy who is as down-to-earth wearing exactly. sweatshirts running for the Senate exactly. as anybody I've ever seen. And, and shorts. shorts. Yeah, Jim, right. Jim has shorts on today. Okay, boy, yeah. we don't need to go into that. Thank you. That is correct. The, I didn't say anything, Jim. No, it's true. <laughs> it is uh, true. But I just thought it's just, just, you know what, you know, be relatable for real, candidates. I'm don't, with you. You know, just be authentic for real. Be you. Hey, I, you know, I've been lucky. To, to tell uh, that I'm story. You. You know? And by the way, for you whatever know? it's worth, there was a great piece on CNN last night mentioning how a significant number of the Republican Trump-endorsed candidates for Senate uh, are losing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the line by Mitch McConnell, he was asked about, are they going to take over the Senate? He said, well, I'm not sure we will because of the quality of our candidates. Right. And Oz is another one who was not ready for prime time, no. and, but Trump loved him, so... Well, also, I mean, there's been a lot of criticism of the stuff he was promoting on his television show, that he yes. was promoting products that he had financial investments in. So he's saying product X is wonderful, not explaining to people that he owns right. 20% of product X's profits. It was really... Now, how far would that go if, he, if that was the first thing he addressed when he got into the campaign? You probably know me from this show. Let me just say, you know, I probably made out like a bandit, did well, because I endorsed some things, and maybe there wasn't the best thing for me to do. I mean, just, you know, yeah. be, be about it. But I don't know. I think that might have gained him a little bit more um, likability in I a way guess. and auth- well, authenticity. Also, he also talks about his two houses when he's got ten houses yeah. and all that. He's trying yeah. to, as you're right, he's just trying to fake his way. Now, having said that, very quickly before we leave this topic, whoever wrote this, where was the story you read? I don't know where it was from. Mentioned New York the, Magazine. Okay, so mm-hmm. the part of the deal and is mm-hmm. uh, uh, part of the deal is that a Fetterman saying, as you say, veggie tray mm-hmm. as opposed to crudite, and whoever wrote the story for New York Magazine goes to his or her coworkers, and almost none of them knew what a crudite was. Right. Yes. How many people here know what a crudite is? Oh, well, actually, it's only about thirty or forty. So I guess I was going to say, what is she talking about? But the answer is... Well, I think is, Martha Stewart talked about crudités, didn't she? Why don't, do we want show? to tell people what it is? Oh. It's, it's a bunch of uh, vegetables, raw vegetables on a plate mm-hmm. with a dip in the middle. Exactly. A veggie yeah. tray. A veggie tray, <laughs> a veggie beautifully tray. put. We're talking to Callie Crossley. <laughs> okay. So, so um, usually uh, we get a bagel here at the, at the Newsfeed yeah, Cafe in the is... morning. And, and I read this story from Market Watch which says bagels are less healthy than ice cream cones? Well, first, let's give props to our local folks. This is from Tufts University, the Friedman That's School right. of Nutrition and Science. Where Corby works, by the way. Corby yep. Comery, yes. one of his uh, jobs. So apparently they, they produced this a couple months ago, and then it just resurfaced, I guess, from the horror of it all, from us realizing it. But they have a, a 1 to 100-point scale. If, if you reach 100, you're perfect. So they have fruits and vegetables that reach 100 as the healthiest rating. If you have less than that, you get less healthy. So on their scale, it turns out Fritos, plain Fritos, not the ones with different Fritos, Fritos get a 55, while the bagel with raisins get a 19. Multigrain, by the way, I'm, I don't like the raisins, but the multigrain bagel, I have been inhaling those forever. Me too. <laughs> so, we, yeah. so I thought, you know, you're on a... And so somebody wrote back, yay, ice cream from breakfast, <laughs> which, you know, I didn't think that's what the people said. But anyway, it's interesting that you, their point is you really have to not in your mind assume what could be or 
could possibly be healthy or is healthier, you really need to look at some stats, which they've been telling us to do anyway. By the way, um, there, I printed out this thing. Unfortunately, it's microscopic, so I can't read it to you. <laughs> it's called Food Compass. Mm-hmm. And if you go to you Google Food Compass and uh, Tufts, as, as Callie says, they break things down into categories, beverages, grains, fruits, uh, mixed dishes, I have no idea what that means, dairy, eggs, meat, etc., savory snacks and sweet desserts. And as Callie said, they rate everything from zero, which is the least healthy, yeah. to 100, which I actually is quite – if you combine this with the thing we did last week here where you lose 36 minutes of your life if you eat a hot dog. Oh, yeah, that's but right. But you gain X number of minutes <laughs> right. if you eat a peanut butter sandwich. Right, with bananas. I mean, you combine these, we could all live long lives. But, there but you go. T- Food t- compass, it's Let me just say, reduced tubs. calorie rye bread is 34, but potato chips are 69. Yeah, I, I, Lightly I know why. salted. I know why. why? I why? think those reduced calorie breads, I used to do those because, yeah. you know, I'm off and on a oh, diet. Oh, I know. My whole too much life, sugar? Too much sugar. I yeah. think oh, it, they're sugar. loaded okay. with sugar. I don't know why extra sugar makes it low calorie. I don't understand. Low fat. Low, a, low fat. A lot of these okay. low no, fat products point. are full or heavy of sugar. sugar right. and, you, and they say you're better off having the high fat because it will fill you up more. All right. It is August. It is the middle of August. But we're yes. going to take a little uh, Christmas in August moment here because we're going to play a clip from Mariah Carey's famed Never too early. song, <laughs> All I Want for Christmas is You. It's the biggest. I didn't know this morning. It's the biggest selling song oh, in the history of music. Yeah, yeah. The number one ever. Yeah, I oh, didn't know on. that. I didn't, I didn't know, that. know that. And it's, yes. it's in Love Actually, the thing that we watch every we Christmas that. or something. Yes. So what's watch the, Love Actually? I love 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 Actually. So do I. What's the con- What's the controversy? Well, um, Mariah Carey feels because of that, and mm. and of course propelled by this song. She has other you know big songs as well. She should be named the Queen of Christmas, and she put in for a copyright. And two other singers said. Not so fast. Um, one of them, uh, I think lots of people know, Darlene Love. Yes. We've had her on the show. I know. She's we fabulous. Love her, yeah. um, and she said, um, I'm sorry, I'm the queen of Christmas, as noted by many people, including David Letterman, where she always went on at Christmas when he had his show and sang um, her song. And then the other one was a person I did not know, Elizabeth, did I. Elizabeth Chan. Um, and um, she has 11 Christmas albums. Did not know that. Her spokesman told the Washington Post in an email last year she dropped an album called The Queen of Christmas. So, and in a 2018 New Yorker, um, profile of her carried the same title. So she said, obviously, I'm the Queen of Christmas. Now, Carrie's lawyers have not responded. So this could turn into, you know, a pretty big legal fight. Okay. So what so do you think? What, do I, what I think is, whatever happened to Mariah Carey? She, I, I'm serious. <laughs> I just read she's 50. Darlene Love is in her 80s, and she's around. She's doing concerts she's all the time. She's in her 80s? The 80s, wow. yeah. That song is Christmas, Baby, Please Come Home, the one she did on yeah. Letterman for like 30 straight Christmases or 35. Are or you serious about what happened to Mariah Carey? When's the last time she did a new Are song? Are you or? kidding? I, I'm not First kidding. of all, she did a whole new album last year. Um, um, she so did? There's, yes, she did. Um, second of all, she had a book that was a beyond blowout bestseller. It was? Yes. And that was just a couple of years ago. Now Kelly's answering this question. (laughs) Kelly's answering this question in the same way she said, who the hell are you mentoring? Well, I mean. It's a variation on a theme. 
Kelly Did is... you know better book or new album? No, Tell but, the truth. No, but, but I see to Kelly Crossley, who is not only Kelly Mentor Crossley, but Kelly Pop Culture Crossley, yeah, culture and Kelly yeah. Cooking Recipes Crossley. A lot of skills here that, that I don't have, because you know everything about pop culture. But was yeah. there a book about it? Was it a memoir? Yes. Oh, yes. I'm trying really to remember good. the name of it. I, I think it's the... the no, it's, it's got a catchy... T- Jamie, what's the name of that book? It's catchy. Come on, Jamie. Yeah. What's the name of the damn book? Let's get with it. Well, Jamie, Jamie the executive producer right here. Uh-huh. The meaning, meaning of, of Mariah Carey. Yeah. Thank you very yes, much, Zoe. Yes. So I guess the answer is you don't what think What is the that, meaning of Mariah Carey? I don't know. We but have to read the book. I, apparently, it, I never read the book, but, but it was a possibility for my book club because apparently it's extremely well. It's ghost-written. It's completely well-written. And it's a fa- she tells a fabulous oh, story. Okay, so, no, she has not gone away at all. So, um, so but, but, the, but the bottom line here is should she be the queen of Christmas or should she not? Well, I don't know if you got the song that everybody that resonates with everybody. Every time I do my quirky Christmas song uh, segment, we have to comment on this because yeah. it stays at the top. You know, no matter what new songs come in, and there are a lot of fabulous ones. Ed Sheeran's song last year was pretty good. What was Ed so Sheeran's song last uh, year about Christmas? Yeah, I'll absolutely. look it up. Yeah, I'll look it up. Um, okay. In case this I is love a, him. I'll do my uh, several months ahead plug. I do a regular segment every year with one of our GBH um, engineers, Mike Wilkins, who collects quirky Christmas it's songs. Actually great. And um, so we listen to the old quirky Christmas songs that he unearths all the time. And we also take a note of what's popular, you know, in that year. So last year, Ed Sheeran, he did it with somebody else. I can't remember right now. Sometimes you uh, stuff with Taylor. Elton, Elton John. John. Um, it was f- it's a fabulous Zoe, song. you should be doing the show, not me and Marjorie. Thank <laughs> you, Zoe, for that, too. Zoe, senior produce, producer, Zoe. That's so. right. Yeah, he's really good. He does stuff with Taylor Swift sometimes, too. I know. So, but, I, but, it's, but I'm just saying, there's some great you know, new songs out there. But let so. me ask you a question, yeah. uh, queen of pop culture over there. Yes. <laughs> Is the Christmas gift for you from Phil Spector actually the best pop Christmas album ever? Do you think that's true? That's, I don't know. I don't know, that. but I love Darlene Love. I mean, yeah. that's the she's thing about it. She's got a great it. voice. Yes, and and because she's so uh, affiliated with that song, I mean, and that's why it, everywhere she goes, people ask her in the yeah. holidays. People ask her to sing that song, so and, she can make a good and argument it's from that. It's yeah. from that album. Yeah, well, you know, since you're good. making recommendations yeah. about whatever you're making a recommendation about, Darlene Love, for those who have not seen her in concert, which I have in the last few years. Uh, she is featured in one of the great documentaries of all time, 20 oh, Feet yeah. from Stardom, yes, that's right. which we've talked a lot about uh, uh, on this show. And uh, she's in it and great. And she's just, she's someone who was a backup singer, 20 right. Feet from Stardom, who moved to the front of the stage. And that's what the whole movie is about, about those different positions. And I won an Academy Award, I think, yeah. too, if I But I just want to just add this one thing. These kinds of conversations, though Mariah has taken it legally, are not a small thing because Beyonce oh. got in trouble when somebody introduced her, I don't think she introduced herself, as uh, the queen of soul. And Aretha Franklin was very much alive and said, I'm sorry, excuse <laughs> me? <laughs> to whom are you referring? Yeah, yeah. I That's believe that would be moi. <laughs> and then everybody was like, oh, 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 oh sorry, sorry. Yeah. So, I mean, this kind of thing is really important, you know. She um, had another d- great documentary that like yeah, Aretha Franklin. Exactly. That was exactly. a really great one. I mean, mm-hmm. she had a tough... I know, and she was tough on the people that she worked with, but so interesting. But she also lifted up, what's that, football players? You know, I don't know sports, but some young football player at her funeral credited her was saving him from debt because he was losing his mind, and and she called him over and said, I'd like to meet with you. Who doesn't meet with Aretha Franklin? And she said, stop it. I need you to need you to save. I need you to invest. I need you to do. Let's really? hope it wasn't Deshaun Watson. <laughs> no, please. Hey, can we move to another topic here? <laughs> yes. Uh, sort of as if uh, going back to beat the press <clears throat> days. 
Uh, Brian Stelter. Yes. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Was fired. Uh, yeah. I don't know if they call it fire. Was fired yesterday uh, as the media critic, reporter, host of Reliable Sources on Sunday. And beyond the fact the guy's really talented, we met him for the first time when he wrote a book a few months ago. About the relationship and between was, Trump right. and Fox the News. The book was right. terrific was and he was terrific. Yeah. And the, the, you know, it's, not only is it a problem because the guy's really talented, and mm. my understanding is the new head of CNN doesn't like anybody who's too far to the left, and apparently he thought Jeffrey Tubin is gone, mm. not for exposing himself, but apparently for that last week. Stelter and apparently Jim Acosta is about to go next, at least the reports are. That leaves, other than, what's his name, uh, mm. Howard Kurtz mm. on uh, yes. Fox News, who right. never says a bad word about Fox no, News. Really There's bad. no media criticism right. left in national news, right? That's a good point, and, um, and there should be. I, think I mean, David Falkenflik does. Uh, oh, of course. But, uh, but right. he, you know, he usually does like in the moment, you know, in-depth pieces so that we all know the, con the historical context, the cultural context, and also the criticism of, of what's happening in the moment. And he does a fine job, by the way. But I have thought that Reliable Sources newsletter is going to continue. Well, they say, uh, you know, it makes me nervous. I for hope. those who have not gotten, by the way, for anybody who cares mm -hmm. at all about the media, I don't know how you feel, Cal. I think yeah. it's one of the great free newsletters ever. Mm -hmm. If you yeah, just Google Reliable yes. Sources, it comes out every day. It's so an well analysis. Research. It's beautifully done. Yeah. And I yeah. think even-handed, actually. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he criticized CNN a lot yeah. during the CNN Plus thing. And he was a little late to the fair on Chris Cuomo, but he yeah. got there. Uh, eventually Oliver Darcy and he write it, uh, Stelter. And Darcy is quoted, Darcy was not fired, Darcy is quoted, I think, in, I don't know where, but some uh, outlet yesterday saying he's been assured by the employer that it will continue after a summer hiatus. When I hear something will mm -hmm. continue mm -hmm. uh, after a summer hiatus, <laughs> when the boss has been fired... Uh, it makes you a little nervous, doesn't it? It does. I, I used to be on that. I used to appear on that show quite a bit. Oh, you did? Mm -hmm. Yeah, back in the day, you know. And, and it's just well, really it was a really good show. I recorded mm -hmm. it every Sunday morning at mm -hmm. 11 o'clock so I could watch it later mm -hmm. in the week. I read his newsletter. I think he's a really talented journalist, and I think he did great work, and mm -hmm. it's very sad. I mean, we have our On the Media, which I love mm -hmm. here at 10 o'clock on Saturday mornings, um, but that usually takes like one story of the right. week and right. elaborates on it, or maybe a couple of stories. Brian was doing a million different Stories every day, every day of what was going on. I'm hoping. I thought the f it was the show that's gone, not Brian, but I could be wrong. No, Brian is fired. He's gone. Brian oh. is definitely gone. He's Actually, I thought that I thought what may have happened is that they might revamp the show and come back with something as they are talking about the newsletter. But who well, knows? Well, Sean Spicer uh, uh, had, yeah, it, had no, it because that's so. the new. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> apparently, this. I don't know if you can. Other than canning CNN Plus after a month, the the. Concern of the new boss, Chris Licht, is that his yes. name? I think it is. Is that the is that the uh, station is too far to the left in terms of guests? And did he say that, or that has been reported? It's been reported. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's been reported yeah, right. that that's his perspective. Right. And I have to say, well, I I like a lot when there's more balance because I think if you can't win right. an argument when there's balance, then frankly you can't win the argument. Right. So you shouldn't. However, they have gotten some of the most clueless. Uh, a people who were Trump's sycophants yes. for four years, and now that it, it's not popular if you want employment to be in the Trump camp for a lot of people, they all of a sudden turned them. I don't think it's done much to bring credibility. But to it, not the on station. his watch. He just got there, so 
Oh like yes, a, no. Yeah, this yeah. has happened during his turn, during his couple of months. Yeah. Oh. A lot of these people, any... press people, etc., who were totally in the Trump camp. I'm a little surprised by that. Now he revamped. He's the one that totally revamped uh, Scarborough show. Yes, I know. And that. he revamped the CBS uh, regular more, show, morning more show. New, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is you know. No, obviously, he's a talented yeah, guy. Yeah. Right. In any so case. we'll see what happens. Okay. Right. So uh, it's good I really to see miss you. Jeffrey Tubin too, despite his. Missed up there. He was very. Brilliant. We had an edge also, which I find very I'm appealing. I'm saying nothing about. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, it's not much. I mean, no one's defending, like yeah, okay. masturbating no. on a <laughs> conference call. Wow. It's a bad it idea. is what it is. It's a bad I mean, idea. I mean, okay. no. I, I mean, that is that is what he did. I mean, that's what okay. he did. He shouldn't have done it. Okay, obviously. Not. Maybe a good idea is not to do it during the day at all, and then you know. I'm have to not worry. joining in on this. Well, I'm just saying. Conversation. Okay. And it's not a mentorship thing. Would you agree? No, it's not a mentorship no, thing. Okay, fine. Let's move on then. <laughs> Callie, it's nice to see you as okay. always. Callie right. Crossy, host of Under the Radar with Callie Crossy, which you can catch Sunday nights right here at 89.7 at 6 o'clock. She also hosts Basic Black, which you can catch Friday nights, 7.30, GBH2 on the GBH YouTube channel. Up next, retired federal judge Nancy Gertner on what's going on uh, with President Trump and, of course, the men indicted for the murder of Whitey Bulger. Nancy Gertner next, 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, live at the Boston Public Library. Retired federal judge Nancy Gertner joins us on that Mar-a-Lago affidavit. And three men have finally been charged in the prison killing of Whitey Bulger. Should the federal government be charged as well? Then it's Andy Anaka, our tech guy. Amazon has acquired Roomba. Will it sell intensely specific information about the way our houses are laid out? And if they do, should we care? Then Andy will provide a detailed guide for when to fix your old phone, and when to dump it. Well, then the show as we happen every Friday this summer with some live music. Gregory Gruber Jr. and Louisa Harris join us from the Mission Hill Arts Festival. Then we'll open the lines and ask you about the elderly driver who cruised her SUV into the second floor of the South Shore Mall. Should Massachusetts ever test 80, 90, 100-year-old drivers? Well, they don't. And alas, they're out there. All that ahead on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. I am Marjorie Egan. Welcome to our number two of Boston Public Radio. We are live at the Boston Public Library. We appreciate everybody coming down here today to the library. We are also streaming at youtube.com slash GBH News. Hello again, Jim. Hello again, Marjorie. We're now joined on Zoom by Nancy Gertner. She is a retired federal judge for the District of Massachusetts, senior lecturer at Harvard Law School, and a BPR contributor. Hello, Judge Gertner. Hello. Hello. Hey, great to have you with us again, Judge Gertner. So I saw you on CNN Almost every time I turn on my TV, I see Judge Gertner on CNN. But I want you were talking last <laughs> night about yeah about um, this affidavit regarding the the uh, search of the former president's Mar-a-Lago home, and the judge considering uh, releasing some part, maybe some of it. What do you think is going on there? I think the judge uh, this is a magistrate judge, so I understand that anything he does could be appealed to the district court judge. Magistrate judges are only uh, are appointed by the district court. They're not confirmed by the Senate, and they generally, what they do, can be appealed directly to the district court judge. That's just the framework here. Maybe this is my own um, instinct coming to play. The government is going to provide the judge 
with a deeply, deeply redacted affidavit. There was a footnote. Can you believe I read footnotes in the judges in the in the government submission, which says, you know, they want to give the government they want to give the judge additional uh, confidential material to show the significance of what they put in the affidavit. So the just the magistrate judge is going to be get a redacted affidavit with additional confidential material suggesting that um, the, the sky is falling. I would be very, very uh, uh, surprised if, the, if we get to see much of this if you, um, if you any were ju- meaningful way. If you were a judge in this case, would you have done what uh, uh, the, judge, the magistrate did in this case, it even asked for a redacted version, or would you have just denied the motion of the journalists in this case? Well, you know, this is, a, this is a judicial version of kicking the can down the road. Uh, yeah, you can ask for a redacted affidavit that looks like you are balancing the interests of the public and transparency on the one hand and the interests of the government on the other. Uh, but as I said, uh, what's going to happen here is there'll be, it'll be a deeply redacted document. What I said on CNN last night, which I think is really... Uh, uh, which I think is really interesting, is that I would bet that the government put a lot of stuff in this affidavit that they didn't have to. It was precisely because this was a search of the former president's residence that they wanted to make sure in ways that they don't even in the ordinary case, uh, you know, that everything was in it. And they're between a rock and a hard place now, having dumped their entire file into this affidavit. Now the judge comes along and says, hey, share it with the public. Uh, so I don't think that there's a, I mean, I, I think that to some degree the government was blindsided because I don't think they ever envisioned that any part of it would ever be public. What I have done with this magistrate judge did maybe, you know, anticipating a, a deeply redacted document and say then to everyone present, gee, I'm sorry, there's nothing here for you to see. You know, by the way, I, I want you to know if you're not aware, you not only just quoted yourself, but you said you were interesting when you were quoting yourself. <laughs> that really was... In any case, you know, I want to ask you... Uh, let me tell you what I would have done as the judge, uh, not that anybody's interested, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I wouldn't have allowed this to happen because part of the judge's re- magistrate's reasoning is this is such... I'm paraphrasing. such an extraordinary uh, case and the public right to know, and I generally believe in that kind of thing. So that elevates it to a certain level. As you say, the, the hell is going to be redacted out of this thing, which is going to create more conspiracy talk. What's behind the black Sharpie that they, they, I'm serious, don't want us to know. And if I was a judge, I would consider that well, when I'm talking about public right to know. You stuff. probably heard uh, Judge Gertner that Judge, uh, I mean, John Bolton, who was uh, one of Trump's foreign and- uh, former national security people that's kind of a controversial guy, he was saying that too. Oh, he that, did? I didn't... Well, his Sorry, argument I didn't... was, and I, I see what you think about it, that the, the politics are different now and that the D- Department of Justice can't operate like it's 1980 because of the viciousness surrounding, uh, you know, online and everything else, and this could end up being Mueller Part 2, where it's built up and built up and built up and built up, and the politics of it are different now. So I don't know what you think of his argument, but that's what he argued. Well, I don't think, I mean, it could be, I I worry that this was Mueller Part 2 when I first heard about this. I thought that if this was a technical violation of the Records Act, Boy, that would be, you know, a, a, a snooze. You know, you'd go, oh, okay, he accidentally took stuff that he shouldn't have. 
But as this has evolved, it's A, not an accident. It B, was the retention of records after multiple opportunities to turn it over. And then it's not just any old records, it's classified records and that were noted as classified. So I think this is not Mueller part two because this is actually a big deal since there is no justification for a former president having what these documents are. Uh, I think that the, the, the problem here is if I'm right and this affidavit really is a complete roadmap and might even have stuff from other investigations and not just the records investigations, then releasing it may make it impossible to prosecute yeah. the former president for anything. Why would it make it impossible? A, because it will, it will enable witnesses to you know, get cold feet and perhaps even Trump or Trump acolytes go and reach out for witnesses. Uh, you know, enable levels of uh, challenges to, the, to what is a, an investigation before it's really turned into an indictment. And then, although the president has absolutely, you know, been very, very difficult to try in terms of the press surrounding this case, clearly, if this affidavit is released, it will be virtually impossible. So this is not just the public's right to know. This is if you meaningfully want to hold Trump accountable sometime down the line, uh, releasing this now may, uh, may, uh, may basically undermine that possibility. You know, I just have one last question. Um, Maggie Haberman, great reporter for the New York Times, has talked about the, the how do you say that word, tchotchke? Tchotchke. Tchotchke yeah. <laughs> defense. Yeah, that, that Trump is a pack rat, and he liked to show people, show off his memorabilia. Apparently, he's got a, a shoe of Shaquille O'Neal that he likes to show people, or these She's letters. She's getting savaged online over this, by the way. Haberman trivializing it is what they're saying. I'm not well, she was saying it could be a possible defense, that he just liked to keep everything to show off to people. Um, does that have any credence in the law, the I'm a pack rat defense? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't see how that works. Um, you may want to have nuclear secrets to put in your scrapbook, but that's hardly a justification. Okay. Um, I, I, don't think, I don't think that that, that, that can work. The, the, the statutes under which they're, he's, they're, they're charging him or arguably charging him are really improper retention of classified information. It really doesn't matter why you did it. It matters only that you did it and that you did it knowingly, that it wasn't an accident, that it was in your possession. Uh, uh, as I said, I thought I saw the whoops defense when we first heard about this. You know, I didn't believe I was actually defeated. I waited till the last minute to pack. You know, I throw everything in a box and there, oh my God, there was, there was classified information. I don't think that works when you're talking about uh, uh, you know, 15 boxes turned over, two subpoenas, a visit by DOJ uh, lawyers, and then a search warrant. It doesn't work for an 18-month retention of stuff you didn't have a right to retain. So I, I think she's right in the sense that Trump doesn't have to be, you know, people may are speculating why he would have kept this stuff. As I said, bear in mind the why doesn't matter for the statutes under which mm -hmm. he's charged. The intent is the issue. Um, if you intended to keep it for tchotchkes, that's one thing. If you intended to keep it in order to um, to show, to, to sort of bolster your position post-president, uh, um, or whether you intended to keep it in order to sell it to the Russians, 
We don't know, but I don't think it matters under these circumstances. By the way, if he uses the pack rat defense, which you're talking about, Marie Kondo will testify for the prosecution. <laughs> We're talking to uh, former judge Nancy Gertner. Uh, the uh, men who are allegedly murdered, uh, Whitey Bulger, just hours after he was uh, transferred to West Virginia prison, were finally charged yesterday, two of them directly for the murder, one for an ancillary thing, so three men all together. Uh, why would it ever take four years to charge people who they identified as people of interest almost at the time of the killing when the killing was done in a totally controlled and limited environment? Why should that not create suspicion amongst observers of this? Your, your question answers itself, Jim. It, um, it's hard to imagine an environment in which uh, less is more is known about the what's going on in a prison and it's hard to imagine an environment in which more is known than uh with bulger with whitey bulger in that prison so i would i mean you're it's the, an entirely appropriate question why did it take this long and who else are they covering up and i suppose the other question is how in creation did this happen well you know that's a, you that's... Know, how, did, how did it happen they they know you're talking about uh, two, am I right, that two of the three are Boston people? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mob guys. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's not like you accidentally put Joe Schmo in with him and Joe Schmo turned out to be someone with a vendetta. Uh, they know exactly who they put in and they know exactly why and they know exactly how they did it. No, I think that this is, this, uh, this is very suspicious. Well, there's a corollary question, which you're touching upon, is, uh, which has been asked for years since the time of his transfer. He was transferred from a facility in which he was in some form of protective custody because yes. apparently pedophiles and mob guys get Inf that. Informants. And informants. informants. I'm sorry, not informants. just mob guys. Informants. <laughs> He's transferred yeah. to a general population prison where they know there are guys like this 12 hours later he's dead by the way don't send texts i'm not showing any sympathy on any front for whitey bulger i'm just saying when you hear people including bulger's lawyers saying uh the issue is not uh these three guys the issue is the uh what did the federal government or some piece of the federal government that chose to put him in this setting were they part of this plot to kill the guy. And I think that is a totally reasonable question. Too, I, think it's, Judge I, think it's a, I think it's a reasonable question. A high profile. So you start with just a high profile defendant. Um, uh, then you start with a high profile defendant who is an informant. And it is an, it is unimaginable that he would have put in, in general population and put in general population or even with with other Boston, mm -hmm. other Boston people. Who, if there's ever anyone who would have understood what was going on, it would be Boston people. Uh, so I, I, this is really incomprehensible, in you know, to the first degree. It's very much sort of, you know, it makes us think about things like Epstein, who was, you know, somehow managed to hang himself under the watchful view of, uh, uh, you know, police guards. And it's, it, these are extraordinary things. In Epstein's case, it was he was on a suicide watch and no one was watching. And this, and, and with the case of Bulger, he should have been in protective custody and wasn't. And so that's a reasonable question to ask of the government. 
<coughs> but we probably won't get an answer from the government because the Bureau of Prisons has been notoriously closed-lipped, tight-lipped about almost everything. I mean, well, can you've they had Congress people. I'm sorry, go ahead. You've had Congress people go down to visit some of these maximum security <coughs> prisons, and they can't get in. Remember that? About well, they the tried to visit the prison in Colorado where Sarnia yeah. is, and they were a number of Congress people told us on the show they couldn't get. You in. know, there are two great quotes. I can't. Oh. I've lost the story. So there well, are the two great, great quotes. Qu in the this first story. great quote is from Rachel Rollins, the U.S. Attorney of Massachusetts. And she's quoted yesterday uh, everywhere. In the truest of ironies, Bulger's family has experienced the excruciating pain and trauma their re relative inflicted on far too many, and the justice system is now coming to their uh, aid. And while you talk to Judge Gertner, I'll find the other one you're talking about. Yeah, uh, that, was, uh, <coughs> that was an excellent quote by the uh, U.S. attorney. Don't you think? Yeah, no, I think uh, it, the, this is whether it was Bulger or somebody else, um, this needs to be examined. So your two points. One is this needs to be examined because it certainly is suspicious. And this, your second point about the, the lack of transparency of the Bureau of Prisons is, is, is extraordinary. You know, since the Attica Rebellion, uh, what was it, 40 years ago, um, you know, the, the, the prison authorities have shut down state prison, federal prison, and courts have enabled them to shut down, shut down in the sense of limiting press access, limiting uh, uh, communication between prisoners and the media. And all of that has been justified, ironically, in the interest of security. <laughs> and so, and, and this case suggests that the security is certainly to be looked at carefully. The other quote that Marjorie's talking about, the story in the Globe is written by the great Shelley Murphy, a former colleague of yours, Marjorie, who's a great crime reporter. It, her story ends with the brother of Deborah Davis, a 26-year-old woman who was allegedly strangled to death by Bulger and an associate in 1981, said he was not happy that the men were charged in Bulger's death. Quote, I kiss his hand like he was the godfather, meaning one of the killers of Bulger. I'm going to send him a $500 canteen gift. Which is pretty uh, great. Yeah, That's Steve Davis great. is quite a character. I've had a chance to interview him Me over too. the years. So, so Judge Gertner, we're talking to former federal judge Nancy Gertner. Uh, let's talk about Alan Weisselberg. He was a big deal in the Trump organization. Supposedly knew where all the every dollar was and all the bodies lay and so forth. Um, he, he has kind of a bizarre deal with the New York Manhattan, uh, the Manhattan District Attorney. It seems to me where he's going to get five months in prison, maybe 100 days for good time if he uh, testifies against the Trump organization in an upcoming trial. But he's pled guilty to 15 felonies. I, I don't know what to make of this. We have a system not of trials. We have a system of pleas. And people who cooperate, get the, uh, who cooperate against others or even other entities wind up getting the benefit of that cooperation. Um, uh, you know, when, when people talk to me about whether or not prisoner, whether or not defendants in front of me should show remorse, and and uh, it, it's clear that the system doesn't care about remorse so much as it cares about using the people in front of us to uh, you know to bring down other people. That's the way we've created a system like that. Ninety-eight percent people plead guilty. There's virtually no trials. So that he got this cooperation is the. Uh, DA is essentially making a calculation that uh, he is less important than uh, attacking the Trump organization. Um, that, that's, the, that's the full answer here. Uh, you know, that whatever he did, if he can tell where the bodies are buried in the Trump organization, 
um, then that will have consequences. And that's what they're betting on. And if, and if the, there's a prosecution of the Trump organization and Weisselberg has agreed to testify, which is the condition for his getting only five months, what's the sanction against the corporation if they're found guilty in a setting like this? Well, the no. corporation could wind up, the corporation could wind, it, it could have immediate consequences, which it could be a chunk of money. It could be a fine uh, of, of rather substantial proportions, depending upon the nature of his uh, of his of his testimony. And then it could have other ramifications, which is a guilty finding against the Trump organization could hobble it in its dealings with regulatory agencies and the licenses it's getting. It could have ripple effects going forward. In other words, labeling it a criminal not a criminal enterprise, but finding it guilty of the crimes that it's charged will mean a chunk of money and in addition have consequences in its ability uh, uh, to, to continue to function. So I think that, that I think that that's part of it. If the implicit in your in your question was why aren't they using him to testify against Trump? That's exactly it. He refuses you know, to, right? He has a he's refused to, and they basically made a calculation that what he says against the Trump organization can provide a roadmap for their further investigation of the former president. He doesn't have to do it directly. He's going to testify under oath testimony then that can be used as a roadmap um, for other prosecutions. But clearly the immediate impact would be on the Trump organization. You know, Judge Gertner, you were a federal judge. You weren't in the, in the DA's office in Boston. This was a district attorney's case in Manhattan. But it's, it seems odd, again, to someone who's not a lawyer. The previous DA, Cy Vance, I think was, was trying to redeem himself after some missteps involving the Trumps earlier in his career, that he was going to go big time after the president. And then Alan Bragg, the new guy, came in. Alvin. Alvin, sorry. Yeah. Alvin Brad, the new guy, came in and decided uh, to really slow down the case. Supposedly it's still going on, but uh, two of the prosecutors that were looking into the case resigned because they were so upset with Bragg's decision. Um, what do you make of that? I mean, it, it does seem odd that one DA would be very gung-ho and the second DA not so much. And, uh, and the only reason the, Brent Vance, his term ran out and he wasn't running for re-election. Right. That's why he... And it was it's a criminal case uh, there, unlike the uh, other case, uh, the state of New York case, which is a civil case. Well, in the, I, I, the question is, you know, this is very interesting, this is sort of the nuances of, of, of criminal law. So with respect to overstating um, the value of properties, which was one um, allegation, uh, uh, it's conceivable that people in the DA's office didn't think that they could prove that was an intentional inten, intentional act on the, on the part of Trump. This is now Trump insofar as he is the head of an organization. And the question is, what does he have his fingerprints on as opposed to lesser people? So if he says to someone, do your best here, you know, essentially you do the details of it and others then did this, that would be one thing. So th there, there are some complexities in going against the head of a corporation or the head even of an of a, of a, of a uh, commercial enterprise where lots of other people have their fingerprint on the, uh, on the activities involved. So, I mean, I, can, I understood that there, was issues, that there were problems showing what Trump knew and what Trump authorized as opposed to what people down the line authorized. Contrast that with what's come out in the January 6th investigation. Yeah. 
in the January 6th investigation, again, I thought that the best defense was going to be, I didn't know what others were going to do. And what the January 6th committee has done is to show Trump at the table when things were discussed with respect to false electors or at the table when things were discussed with respect to overturning the election. So I think that I think the, the commercial case is more complicated, that's all. And, um, and, and arguably, as I said, this DA may be thinking, okay, we'll have Weisselberg testify under oath against the Trump organization, and that could lead us in, in other interesting directions. You know, before you go, I couldn't help but stare at your chair while you're talking to Marjorie. Did you sneak that out of your chambers when you left the federal bench? I mean, it looks like, <laughs> no. looks like one of those, no? No, 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 I'm in my, I'm in my she shed. Oh, um, she ship. I love I'm it. I'm in my she shed in, 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 uh, in New Hampshire. And, oh. you know, I don't pay any attention. My offices are generally terrible. I'm very, you know, very, very, uh, really messy. The other day on CNN, I was told after the fact that I had a bug spray can over my left shoulder. <laughs> so I thought I, all the people that I know who spend time to make sure that their books and their posters and their pictures are okay. I had bug spray. Well, let me tell you <laughs> something. If you're bugs. marketing Nancy Gertner bug spray, why not? I mean, I, I would. Judge Gertner, as always, great talking to you. Thank you so Thank much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. We've been speaking with uh, Nancy Gertner. She was a federal judge uh, in Boston for a very long bug time. Bug spray. Uh, that's right. Uh, she is now retired from the, as a judge for the District of Massachusetts. She's now, though, a senior lecturer at Harvard Law School, and we're very happy to say a Boston Public Radio contributor. Yes, we are. Thanks a lot again to Judge Gertner. Next up, best-selling author and comedian Jesse Klein. I'm so excited about this. So am I. On her new collection of essays on motherhood at midlife, you're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And Marjorie just teased that Jesse Klein, the brilliant writer of I'll Show Myself Out, Essays on Midlife and Motherhood, will be with us at 1230. And that is accurate. Unfortunately, it's 1230 Pacific time. <laughs> Apparently, her people thought we meant California time. We did not because we're not in California. We're on <laughs> wherever we are, Boston. So, uh, and change I don't think the show's going to be on at 3.30. Of plans. Little change of plans. We'll have Jesse Klein yes. on soon. By the way, you should read the book. Uh, it is, as Marjorie says, it is laugh out loud funny. I'll show myself out. It's a collection of essays about Well, what it basically is, is she's talking about how we have not ever embraced the heroism of motherhood from the heroism of pregnancy childbirth, recovering from childbirth, and taking care of a newborn baby uh, when you're, like, falling apart physically, mentally, Well, you're making it all sound nice. There's also a chapter on how your husband is going to have a new woman five seconds <laughs> after you're dead. So it well, depends on what she's writing about. She's nailed it, hasn't she? In any case. So uh, we're going to move ahead to something we're going to do earlier. I'm sure you've all seen the video, but if you haven't, check it out. This 78-year-old driver somehow got her SUV 
on the second floor concourse of the South Shore Plaza Mall in Braintree. Here's Janet Parsons. She was in the mall at the time speaking to NBC10. She says, do you know how to get out of here? And I said, stay right here. I'll get somebody. And she kept on crawl, creeping forward. And then she lodged on the carriage holder. But when she did that, she put her foot on the gas and her wheel was spinning. She just evidently kept on coming because when I came out of the store to run to another store, she came around the corner and kept on going real slow. It's, it's a blessing that no one got hurt. That woman is fabulous. No one was hurt, as uh, Jenna Parsons says, because it means we can make jokes about it for the next 20 minutes. The police have requested her driver's license, thankfully, that it be suspended by the RMV. No surprise there. We want to get you in on this. Marjorie and I, for how many years we've been on the air? We had 23. It's 1999. Okay, Jim. 23 years we've been on the air. For 23 years, yeah. we have been campaigning for the following thing unsuccessful. Here's a question for you, Marjorie, and our mm -hmm. listeners. If you take a driver's test in Massachusetts and you're 16 and you pass the test, you're now 96, not That's 16. Right. How many additional driver's tests will you have taken in the intervening 80 years? Well, you may have a vision test. What driver's you test. What you don't have is a road test. None. Zero. That's it. Zero. It's all over. And what's really scary about this is something to look forward to. Apparently half of people are going to have some form of dementia by the time they're 85, so yeah. we can all look forward to that. So we even make it to 85. Mm -hmm. But it is incredible um, th that we don't do that in Massachusetts. And you have a lot of tragic things. This luckily was not. But you have a lot of drivers who are in their 80s and 90s incredibly, and they're still driving without any kind of road test. We even have a few who are 100 who are still driving, because you lot, you wrote a piece about this. I wrote a piece the, the Globe magazine. For the Boston Globe, that's there right. There are a bunch of people in their hundreds who are still driving. So and the question know, for you at 877-301-8970, uh, that's for texting or calling, is my original position 23 years ago was there's a certain age you shouldn't be able to drive a car. I softened because it angered so many people in the AARP community yep. and said... You're starting, pick a number. When you're 60, every couple of years, you should have to take a, take a driver's test to make sure you're not going to drive onto the second floor of the mall in Braintree. 877-301-8970. Where are you on the older driver conundrum? Well, there are a couple of great stories about this. And the favorite story of all time, of course, was the gentleman who thought he was in a snowdrift mm -hmm. in August, someplace down Called the Cape. Called the cops, yeah. Called the cops. And uh, he was not actually... Where was he? He was in a, in a sand trap. On a golf course. <laughs> on yeah. a golf course. Close he was enough. so confused. And the other classic thing you always hear in these stories is the person will say, well, I thought I had my foot on the brake, but my mm -hmm. foot was on the gas. So if you have all your reflexes about you, which you may not when you're 90, you, you know, when you realize you have your foot on the gas instead of the brake, you remove your foot from the gas and you put it you back on the brake. You generally do. You're supposed That's to, what yeah. you do. But in these situations, people don't. They just had their foot in the gas, and they keep going. And did you hear what the woman said? That the wheel was spinning uh, when she had her foot on, uh, foot on the gas. But uh, she did know she was in the wrong place because, as she told the, uh, the authorities, she asked, how do I get out of here? Yeah, but I, so Marjorie, if I may, I don't want you to comment. We, it, knowing you're in the wrong place after you've driven onto the second floor of a mall is mm -hmm. not that useful. Not driving onto the second floor of the mall is useful. I just looked this number up from the piece I wrote a bunch of years ago for the Globe magazine. Guess how many drivers over 96 still had a license and obviously hadn't taken a driver's test in 80 years? Who would that be? How many would that be? 
2,965. I'd say that's roughly 2,965 too many. And by the way, if you're saying this is unfair to older people, they need their independence, that's my softened position. At 90, let them take a driver's test. At 80, let them take a driver's test. And if they pass it, let them drive. Now, Marjorie has taken a lot of heat through the years, too. Every time we talk about this, which is about every six months, Marjorie wrote a column that was really sadistic. A number of years ago, you did. Describing people who, you know, when you're older, you shrink. You get a little smaller than you were before. You don't claim credit for having come up with this concept. I didn't come up with this concept. Well, whether you stole it or not, how did you describe the disappearing old person behind the wheel in the column you wrote for the Boston Herald? Q-tips. Q-tips. And why is that, Marjorie? Because this is my maiden aunts who are no longer with us, needless to say. Mm -hmm. But they they, they did shrink a lot, and they used to have to put books underneath them so they could see over the top of the dashboard as they got very old, and they shouldn't have Mm -hmm. been driving. And it was scary as hell to drive with them. But the little tufts of white hair would just Or blue hair, depending on what... Yeah, like a few inches above the, the wheel. And so you were driving behind them. And lots of times people thought there was no one, no one driving the car until they got close enough to realize that there were these little tufts of hair sticking up above uh, the, uh, the back of the seat. And in their defense, they did finally realize they shouldn't drive. But, but, but they How would, old were they when they realized they shouldn't drive? In their early 90s. Well, it was bad. I, I would it was say bad. It's a little and late. There was, this, there was this woman I knew when I was a kid who used to drive up this very night. She had a house that was down this, this, this long driveway. <laughs> and she'd drive up and she'd take off you know, bush branches from one side of the road and the other side of the road. She'd have all these bush branches sticking out, stuck to her car because she took off half the bushes as she drove up the hill. She shouldn't have been driving either. And, and, the, and the beauty of having the state step in is many of you may be in the same position where you know uh, your grandparents or your parents exactly shouldn't right. be driving anymore and you know you're, you're scared they're going to hurt themselves or even worse, or maybe not worse, but just as bad hurt somebody else. I'd say it is worse. So you want them not to drive anymore, but they give you a big argument about it because in their defense, they can't get anywhere without a car. They can't get to CVS. They can't get to the supermarket or whatever. If they don't live a place, they can walk to it. And the, the, the state does not provide adequate transportation for these people. And maybe your family doesn't live near you. So I get that. But it takes it out of your hands. You won't have your father or your mother telling you to drop dead because you want to take away their car keys. Exactly. And, um, and so that's why the state should should step in. So we have two proposals. The one proposal is that after a certain age, you can pick the age, you have to take a driver's test every couple of years. If you pass it, great. If you fail, uh, then so be it, unfortunately. And hopefully you'll get some help getting around from place to place. And I think I'd add the second rule. See if you agree with this. Forget the driver's test. If you can't see over the dashboard without a telephone book, <laughs> would you not agree you probably shouldn't be driving? That is a problem. We have an emailer who says he has to head to the mall tomorrow to get a suit fitted for a wedding. I'm thrilled to hear the mall is now offering drive through service, but a bum. Thank you very much. 877-301-8970. By the way, Jesse Klein, who thought we were talking Pacific time, now is into the East Coast time thing. She'll join us shortly after 1 o'clock. Oh, good. I'm so excited to talk to her. That's great. John in South Boston, you're first on Boston Public Radio. Welcome. Hi, Jim. Hi, Marjorie. Hey. Uh, I, I I don't dispute in any way that older people could perhaps have to take a driver's yeah. uh, test. But I do think this woman in specific has been really hard done by the way this story's been reported. How so? I think that the implication of saying, oh, she's on the second floor, is that she had done something crazy to get there, that she had driven up the stairs or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I saw reported yesterday was that she was in the parking garage, which connects to the second floor, that the concrete barriers that direct traffic had been removed for an unclear reason, and that she took a wrong turn and ended up in the mall. She gets there... She's obviously super embarrassed. 
there's people yelling at her. I could totally see myself getting overwhelmed at having made that decision trying to get out. Uh, but I think just the reporting of this as if he'd done something horrible, crazy, a mistake that nobody else could have made is really unfair to her. Well, you know, in all fairness, John, and you're a much nicer person, obviously, than I am, which doesn't take much. You, she drove up the pedestrian ramp. I mean, that, that's problematic, is it, is it not? I, well, I think it is problematic. But I will say if, if the pedestrian ramp was big enough uh, that you can fit a whole car, and you very clearly have, I've been to this mall, uh -huh. uh, it's a mistake. I'm not disputing that. But I think it's just been exaggerated, the scale of the mistake okay. that had to be made. Okay, well, I, you know, that's a decent point. But you also agree there's nothing wrong with having a 78-year-old, oh, which is what she is, take a test. Great. John, thanks for your empathy and your call. We you appreciate know, it. one of the stories I'm looking for, um, she, this was probably the telltale sign that she wasn't really um, totally in, in using her driving skills because she creeps up to this car return, cart return thing, and she bends the whole cart return thing before she backed off it and then steered past it into the mall. Mm. So the fact that you are hitting a cart return is not a good sign. And the fact that you go through, go by these stores. I mean, she was stopped in front of the store, the Track 23 and the Arrows footwear. And she kept going for another 60 feet um, after she got into the mall. She took a left turn, I guess, and kept mm -hmm. going for 60 feet. So these are not, these are not good signs. I think if you... Realize you were inside the mall. It's probably time to stop. It was probably time to stop. Yeah. And if you couldn't back out, ask for some kind of assistance, you, you wouldn't keep going. Yeah, yeah and she also did ask, we haven't confirmed this, how do I get to the third floor? I mean, that was, that was also, I, I should have said that to the caller from South Boston. But she couldn't drive to the third floor. No, so she might not have been, she might not have been, you know, what did she say, crazy or mentally deranged, something like that. She yeah, was, we're not saying, she, no, she, she was confused. She, she was older and confused. Exactly. And, and as people point out, it is really hard. A lot of your reactions get slowly, slower, slower as you get older, do. right? And, and you cannot figure out. We hear this no. all the time. I thought I had my foot in the brake. I had my foot in the gas. Mm -hmm. So instead of taking my foot off the gas and putting my foot in the brake, mm -hmm. I kept it on the, on, the, on the gas and I just gunned it. Mm. Mary from Attleboro. I'm Marie from Marie Attleboro. Too. Hi, Hi Marie. Marie. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Great. Okay, so I have macular degeneration, yeah. which means that overall my vision right now isn't too bad, but there are pieces of it missing. And so I realized about two years ago that I did not belong on the road, and I had the cognitive ability to make that decision. I still have a license, and when I go to the doctor or whatever they say, well, just because you can drive. So I guess my point is I can easily see how it's, it's really hard to give up your license. Yeah. I mean, like Marjorie said, you know, how do I get around? I do have to depend sometimes on my son. Um, the transportation infrastructure, even down here in Alboro, is like falling apart. Uh, we haven't been able to get a dialer ride, like actually on a phone call, for a week now. Um, Marie, can I interrupt you and say you're yeah. raising? We're treating this probably more lightly than we should because no one was hurt in this instance. Every time we've talked about this, the point you're bringing up beautifully is and you're made and yeah, it's really you're important. You're totally right. Elder services, whatever they're called, have got to be funded so that there can be some transportation provided for people who can, don't have family around or can no exactly. longer get from place to place. There's, obviously, you can't do, you can't take away, well, you can, but taking away someone's license without providing an alternative for an older person who craves exactly. his or her independence and doesn't have support 
obviously they have to go hand in hand. So we're really glad you made the point and thank you for the call, Marie. We appreciate it. 877-301-897. Can you explain to me, by the way, years ago when we first started this ill-fated campaign of ours, Marjorie and I, the AARP of New England did, remember the newsletter they did where they referred to us as terrorists? They literally referred to us as terrorists in their newsletter for suggesting that seniors should have to take a road test. But other than fear on Beacon Hill from legislators of older voters who vote much more regularly than do younger voters, can you give me one argument against asking an older person to take a road test? There is none. There's none? No, there's there's none. none. So why doesn't that happen? Because they vote. Even though almost every older person who's ever called our show when we've had these discussions for 20-some years, almost everyone thinks as long as the law was fairly constructed, they'd be perfectly fine with having to take a test. Amber says, my husband always said about older drivers, if I ever start driving like that, shoot me. No, I know. Well, that's another option, but that's not one we endorse. Let's go to Brookline and Lorraine. Hey. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm I'm 79. Oops. And recently I decided to check my driving acuity. Good. And I took an online, I took an online test and? to see if I was still current on the, I passed it with flying colors. Yeah. Um, but that's still not a substitute for a driving test, which I think is a good idea. The last time I was eligible to renew my license, I was told I could do it at the RMV at a kiosk. So I went to the kiosk. I took my own picture. They said, can you see? Yes. Can you hear? Yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they're just looking for trouble. Um, so, Lorraine, would I be comfortable on the road next to you? I believe you would. Well, it's fine. I mean, you have the right attitude. And, and thank you for your generosity of spirit and your call and that sort of thing. Remember the stories we've heard through the years? I don't know if the R&B is like it used to be. Remember when uh, person after person called us to say, that they thought even the vision test, I think you have to take it every five years, I think it's a one reform they may have done in Massachusetts, where uh, I knew my uncle, my aunt, my parent was going to flunk the vision test because they couldn't see. And what do we hear story after story from callers? That the people in the RMV felt bad for them and would help them pass the test. Even even though they couldn't see a damn thing. Listen to this. This is from Lynn Plymouth. I have a senior relative, 85 plus, who plans every trip so that she does not need to make a left turn (laughs) as her vision is impaired. Rotaries, needless to say, are out of the question. Needless to say, says Lynn in Plymouth, I always offer to drive, which is great. Can you do that, by the way? Can you go out? And not make a left turn and get somewhere and get home? I don't I can't know. Quite it would take a lot of planning. Geometry or it, something. It would take a part of planning. But you know what you feel terrible about? You feel, I mean, this happened to a friend of mine whose elderly mother. Is this going to be a bad story? Well, hit someone and kill the person. Oh, that, well, that's horrible. And, and, and that, is, that is how she spent the rest of her life, thinking about what she did because she shouldn't have The older have woman drunk. who did it. Yes. Yeah, that's horrible. And her son felt absolutely horrible because... They, you know, were in a spat about mom, you can't drive anymore. And mom would say, yes, I can. He would say, no, you can't. And it, it was absolutely horrible. Monique in Norwell. What do you think, Monique? Hey, Monique. How are you? Oh, my goodness. Hi. Hi. I love you. Oh, it's so great to be on. Thank you. Um, and I, I take offense, Tim. Why? When I got my license, I still needed a phone book to see over the steering wheel. <laughs> oh, well, then I take okay. that back. Well, you're a petite woman, Monique, right? I'm petite. A petite woman. <laughs> and I love the, the seats now because you can crank them up to your height. That's true. <laughs> but I had, my mother was in her 80s and she was still driving. God bless her. She passed at 99. Oh, but 
it was. Um, oh, I thought you meant she passed the test at 99. Oh, I'm there sorry. isn't a test. I mean, she passed away at 99. Sorry about that, Monique. That's okay. Um, but um, she drove in her 80s, and we talked to her about it. And she was happy having the car. We had rules. She could drive around in her parking lot where she lived. But the minute she was stuck near the road, she had to turn around and come back. And she did this for a couple months, and she was very happy just being able to drive. And after that, she was done. She said, okay, I'll give up my license. And, and it worked out great. Well, but I know it's not the same for everybody else. So. Yeah, we haven't gotten calls today from people who've had huge fights with their older parents over this issue, how painful it is and how tough it is. Yours is a beautiful ending because it sounds yeah. like your mother was totally rational about the danger to herself and others. And if people yeah. are into the parking lot driving, it's great. But there are a lot of times people need a doctor, a government official, somebody to sort of help out because they just can't do it. Well, Monique, so thank you. I'm sorry, go ahead. Until the, that's okay. Until this day, well, until she passed away, she was adamant that her car was tan. And we have pictures of it, and it was blue. Close oh, enough. Oh, God. Come on. <laughs> Close enough. Hey, uh, Monique, that was a great story. And keep driving on the phone book. It's fine with me. Thank you for the call. We have a lot of people, I can't get to them all, talking about what their parents or grandparents have done. Here's one who says, when my dad was in his late 80s, he drove around a line of five cars waiting for someone to take a left turn and then was furious when everybody was beeping at him. Uh, then somebody else said, my father at 84 was declared legally blind in oh Rhode Island. He needed a cane to walk around. He moved to Massachusetts and got his driver's license here. Wow. There you go. Where was he from before? He, Rhode Island. Oh. Yeah, he, he moved here and got his drive, driver's license here. By the way, speaking of Rhode Island, we should say, I'm sure you're going to tease it at the end of the show, the Gina Secretary Romando. of Commerce for the yeah. United States, former governor of Rhode Island, is going to join us on Monday. Look, speaking oh, of Rhode Island, look who's on the phone. Andre, who made oh his my return God, last week Island. after years of whatever he was. Hey, Andre, how are you? Hey, how are you guys doing today? Excellent, excellent. Hey, so listen, I don't know if you guys remember, but I'm from Chicago. So my father, God rest his soul, a few years back, he, you know, he, he had early, you know, Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. but he was still living alone and he was driving. Okay. So a couple of times we got reports that, you know, he he called the cops and reported his car stolen. So both times they were, that he reported his car stolen, we found it like down the street where he parked and just <laughs> forgot it, right? Oh, no. So so we finally said, Dad, look, man, you you can't drive no more, man. You got to give up the keys, man. So we took the we took the keys, my brother and I. We took the keys. You know, we're going through the glove box. We look at the glove box. I'm like, man, this car ain't even registered, right? <laughs> We looked up the register. So then I go, I go in the house. I'm like, Dad, let me see your license. Man, his license had been registered. Uh, I mean, his license had been expired for like five years. The car had been registered in like four years. There was no insurance on it. And my dad was in the choir. He picked up the ladies every Sunday. It'd be him and like five old ladies riding dirty to church every Sunday. Singing, man. I was like, this is unbelievable, man. Oh, my God. Andre, that's a pretty good one. So how did, he, uh, how did he react when you finally said no moss, no more? Oh, we didn't have any problems getting the key. He handed them right over. You know, he, he, we told him, he said, Dad, man, listen, you know, he, he tried to tell us at the car. I said, Dad, nobody's stealing your car and driving a block away and leaving you know what I mean? Like, it, it's just, it just doesn't happen, you know? It, he lived in a high-rise in Chicago, so parking was crazy. You often had to walk 
you know, to get we to got where it. you go. But yeah, but that's was, a good one. Was, no problem. Andre, it's great hey. to talk to you as always. Thanks Thank so much you. for the call. We appreciate it. A texter wants to know, if we take licenses away from the elderly, how will they get to serve in Congress? That's a very good <laughs> point. We were talking about Senator Grassley yesterday, who's a mere 88. And we were talk- By the way, I was a little bit wrong. Uh, Strom Thurmond did not marry a 22-year-old when he was 100. No, he was he a didn't. little short of 100. So yeah, he was a little short of 100. My apologies to the late Senator uh, uh, Thurmond. Let's take one more. Dorinda in North Chelmsford. You're on Boston Public Radio. We're talking about road testing being required for older drivers. Hey, Dorinda. Hi. Hi. I'm excited. First time caller. We're glad to have you. Listen forever. Thank you. So I I am tall, so Mm -hmm. I have that advantage, but I'm 78. I have a license. As I said when I called in, I, of course, am an awesome driver. Mm -hmm. No question. (laughs) But I had been going to call and say, yes, we should be testing in Massachusetts. I was going to say at age 80, but then now that I know that poor lady in Braintree was yeah. 78. I'll say, okay, age 75. Well, it's very reasonable of you, Dorinda. How, what kind of driver are you, Dorinda? Oh, I'm good. Why would you wonder? Well, I, I, <laughs> no, raise your right hand when you answer the question. Are you really a good driver or you just want to be a good driver? No, I'm a pretty good driver. Oh, well, good. Dorinda? Yeah. We're really glad you got through for the first time. Thank you very much for the uh, for the uh, call. You know, next month when the governor's here, we yeah. should ask the governor, and there's a candidate for governor who we'll have on soon. Uh, uh, well, we'll hopefully have all of them on soon. But uh, Attorney General Healy, ask him where they are on testing uh, older drivers. I'm very curious. Listen to this one before we go. Yeah. I was at the RMV years ago, and a very elderly woman, 90 pounds, cane, couldn't stand upright, guessed her way through the vision test. E, she said? No. Try again. L, she said. Nope. <laughs> Try again. And they did that all the way through until she And then passed her? I guess they passed her, yeah. It's beautiful. So it, it is a problem. Anyway, we are moving on. We're going to talk to Andy Anaka, our tech man. There's a new iPhone coming out in the fall. He's going to tell us whether what we should do with our old phones. And we're also going to hear about Amazon buying Roomba, the things that vacuum around yeah. your house. And whether that's a good idea or not, I think he is very suspicious. That's next. And then Jesse Klein. Jesse Klein is going to be book. here. That's and right. then the music right. you've all been waiting for. And we yeah. heard a little bit of them rehearsing at noon, and they are terrific. Yeah, Jesse Klein is really funny. You don't want to miss her. She's going to be at 1.15. Anyway, uh, we're Boston Public Radio. We are broadcasting live from the Boston Public Library, as we do every Tuesday and Friday. Um, and we're 89.7 GBH. We are. He's Jim Browdy. And she's Marjorie Egan. And this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1 Boston, online at gbhnews.org. Boston's local NPR. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan live at the Boston Public Library, streaming at youtube.com slash gbhnews. We're joined now in our BPL studio, or at our BPL studio, or whatever it is, by Andy Anako. Andy's a writer, blogger, and authority on all things tech. You can follow him at IHNATKO. Andy, great to see you. Great to be here. So let's start with the uh, Apple announcing its next iPhone next month. Here's my iPhone here. It's rather old. It's an iPhone I can 8. I can't, I have to put it on speaker or I have to have the earbuds in to hear on it anymore. So I'm thinking about getting a new phone. So I was all excited about this. But then you talked about how we can improve our old phone. So maybe I should just try to improve my old phone. 
It depends. I mean, I, I do know people who are like, oh, wow, I can't wait to get the new iPhone this year. Like, yeah, but you got the new iPhone last year. Yeah, but this one is new. Like, okay, don't, you don't, don't think about upgrading just because there are new stuff out there. My usual thought is that if your phone is only a couple years old, you, you really have to have dropped it someplace awful for you to need to want to replace it. Three years old and more is where you start to get into okay. it might work out. Yeah. Yours is a really good case because yours was made five years ago. If you were to upgrade, you would get a lot of huge benefits that you would immediately notice. If you were, if you had updated two years ago, you really wouldn't notice anything. Better, so you, better pictures? Much better okay, pictures. Okay, well, there you go. Better, you'll get faster speeds. You'll yeah. be able to do all... There, it, it's com- your uh, iPhone 8 is actually the... It's actually the oldest phone that will run the next version of the operating system. So next year, you will be obsoleted. But this year, you can still run uh, I, uh, iOS 16, which is coming out uh, in a couple of weeks. So th- that's my other caveat. Once uh, the manufacturer, whether it's Apple, Google, Samsung, stops providing it with software updates, that's when you should really you know, c- consider updating because now you're not going to get any more security updates. A lot of new software isn't going to work with it anymore. That's yeah. when it really pays off. Oh, yeah, Marjorie's doing a lot of software updates in her spare time. iOS 15.6.1 is available tonight, okay, so I'm, I'm not yeah. to 16 yet. You're not 16 yet, but you'll be able to get it. Okay. Okay, you. so let's forget Marjorie, somebody whose phone is <laughs> old. No, I didn't mean let's forget Marjorie at all. I meant if your phone is older and it's coming apart at the seams, you get a new one. Let's talk about what you can do if your phone is a little healthier than Marjorie's that most of us are not aware you can do. What are some of the fixes that will bring a little bit of life back to your phone for another year or so? Usually there are two things that I recommend. If you haven't shut off your phone or restarted it in a while, uh, you'll be surprised at how much faster or more responsive your phone is going to be when you restart it. Because uh, every time apps launch and run, you know, they create little scratch files for themselves, and they're supposed to delete those. The operating system is also supposed to do that garbage collection. But it's not always complete. And if you can imagine every time when you clean the kitchen, you only take out 99% of the trash, eventually when you want to make a waffle, you'll have to step around things, and it's not going to be very efficient. Uh, so the major garbage collection happens when you shut down and restart it. So if you haven't restarted it in a while, it's a good idea every week or two, maybe uh, as late as ever, once a month, to do a restart. That might actually clear some, some stuff up and make things run faster. Just How about, you know, you did something, you mentioned us in your memo, which is terrifying to me. <laughs> I've done it once in my whole life with any device I've had, one of those factory resets. And you do the, the cautionary tale, which every expert like you says, make sure everything is backed up. Right. I don't know anybody except someone with your level of expertise who does not hold their breath when they do a factory reset, that when, they, when it turns back on, nothing is going to be on the cloud, nothing is going to be <laughs> saved. And they're totally, so that, that, that's an extreme thing for somebody who is not of your expertise, yes? It's a leap of faith, definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the walk on hot coals, only you lose all your kids' photos. Uh, so but, but, but actually, phones are really, really good at backing up photos, backing up data. It knows that the people who are using these features aren't tech-savvy, so it works really, really automatically. But there's a good reason why I do that. Once a year or so, I try to do just destroy everything on the phone, return it to zero, no apps on it, no, no anything. And the big win about that 
is that oftentimes, like, I, you download a game or utility and use it for a couple of days, and then you stop using it, but it's still there. And not only is it taking up space, but maybe it's running in the background, checking your location. Slowing like your that. phone down. It's slowing your phone down. And it just shouldn't be there anyway. So the only effective... And okay, I try to scroll through, so, oh, I haven't used that, delete, haven't used that, delete. But the only way to do it for sure is delete everything, start all over again, and every time I need an app, I will download it again. So I don't install Evernote until the first time I need to use Evernote. I don't use Pocket until I don't install Pocket until the next time I need to use Pocket. And I don't my, my David Bowie albums don't go in there until the next time I really want to listen to David Bowie. And the upshot the upshot of that is that after a couple of weeks, yeah, it's a pain in the butt. But after a couple of weeks, the only stuff is on that that uh, is on that phone is the stuff that I actually use and need. And it's much cleaner, much faster, much more agile. As but as if result. you're nervous about a factory reset, which is pretty obvious, I am. If you're willing to go through the painstaking process of one by one. Uh, uninstalling apps that you just don't use, do you achieve the same result at the end of the day? Other than the fact it takes yeah. a lot more time. A lot of the same result. Again, a lot of these apps are running, doing stuff in the background. But Apple and Google, both the operating systems are supposed to be good enough to realize that, hey, look, this guy hasn't launched this app in three weeks. Why is this still running stuff in the background? And it will actually like freeze it. It'll uh, it'll sort of put it into the deep freeze. It'll still be installed. If you launch it, it'll still run, but it will just stop running. Uh, stop doing. Why stuff is in the there a feature that notifies you? I mean, obviously they want you to get a new phone all the time. <laughs> but short of that, why isn't there? Or is there a feature? that says you haven't used this particular app in four weeks, do you want to delete it? Why don't they affirmatively notify the phone user? There are a lot of, lot of features like that. Oh, as, as a matter of fact, on my iPad right here, which uses much the same stuff as, uh, as the iPhone does, I, will, I might notice that uh, I want to use a certain app and it's sort of grayed out because it did realize that, look, you haven't used this app in nine months, so we made up room for other things. If you tap it, we will download and install it and get it going again so fast that you will barely notice that we deleted it, but we decided that we need to manage things for you because clearly you're incompetent. So let me ask you something. When you have like uh, these audio books which you've listened to on your phone and you're done with them, um, they're still in your library, mm -hmm. so you should get rid of all those. Stuff you're not using anymore, yeah. yeah. I, I have lots, boy, I have lots of audiobooks that I downloaded with the best of intentions, but just like when you buy that copy of Infinite Jest and it just sits there on the, <laughs> it sits there on the shelf, only with the audiobook, no one gets to see how smart you are by having it on your that's, phone. That's right, that's but right. But yeah, it, all these things do tend to creep up. For, for me, it's comic books. Like, I've got uh, gigabytes of comic books that I've just downloaded because, hey, I'm going to be flying to San Francisco next week. I, I wouldn't want to have less than 400 different comics on my, <laughs> depending on what I want. And then I forget about it, then I, then I curse and cuss because, oh my God, I can't, down, I can't copy stuff off my camera anymore because it's too much and it's all your fault. That, yeah. Again, that's why I like to nuke it from a, nuke it from, a, uh, from orbit. That's the only safe way. One last question here. Well, two questions. The first question is, do you look cleaner cut than usual today or do you do something to yourself? <laughs> no, I'm serious. Cut? You look different. Do <laughs> you, the are, you, are you different? What's the deal? It's mostly the attitude. You okay, know? fine. Oh, okay, there thank you. you. Go. Okay, final question is... <laughs> I got a better night's sleep last night. When all the stuff... You look good. When all the <laughs> stuff we just uh, talked about, you do all the things that you were describing, and at the end of the day, you're still not ready for a new phone. You think it's a battery. I, I, I was of the opinion that battery replacement is not only expensive but really difficult. You seem to be set, suggesting neither is true anymore. Is that so? It's actually super cheap. They, it's difficult to do it yourself. It's not out of the question, but it's difficult to do it yourself. But that's why Apple, for instance, go to any Apple store for less than 100 bucks. They will 
Take your phone, they will swap out the a battery. New battery? Give, you a give you a brand new battery. So that's another thing. If you have a five-year-old phone, you might notice that, gee, it's not, the battery doesn't last me all day anymore, and maybe that's what's driving you to want to get a new phone, but for less than 100 bucks, they can give you a brand oh. new battery. It'll be right back up to spec. It might even run faster, too, because... There were batteries. There were batteries. Because, well, because the Apple actually got into trouble for this. It was, they were looking out for the user. When the, uh, when the battery gets really, really old, the, the iPhone wants to see, gee, I bet this person would much rather have longer battery life, so I'm going to not do things the fast way. The, 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 all the technology that lets you do things super, super fast but consumes lots and lots of power will run more slowly but will drain the battery less quickly. And so as a result, if it does detect that you have an old, old battery, it will run more slowly. So when you do upgrade to a brand new battery, you might find that it runs faster. Well, you know, how much is the new iPhone going to cost? Uh, going to have three or four. It'll probably start at about eight hundred, maybe a little bit less than that. I'd get you, the battery, Marjorie. <laughs> Try the battery. The, the well, but I want new pic. I want really great pictures. Oh my God, you're going to be so blown yeah, away. I want great you're, pictures. You're, you're going to be able to take pictures in the like the in like I'm sorry for bumping the mic, but the the, the, the almost the dead of dark. You will be able to. Uh, take pictures from far away. Video is going to be like so much crisper. That's why it's so you're doing such yourself such a, 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 a such a mitzvah by not getting a phone every single year. It's going to be like the first time you had chocolate. Okay. The difference between this your old or phone the and first time you whatever. <laughs> no, what? Why well, he was talking about how great it was. Okay, uh, uh, Jim, your argument has been ruined. We're not going to get a new <laughs> battery when we can get heaven. A hundred dollars versus eight hundred dollars? Because look what look what look what Andy's just talking about. I'll be able to get videos and pictures. I have a new little grandchild. Not after you drop it in the toilet. I have not. I have not <laughs> dropped it anywhere. Well, I have dropped it a lot actually, in the but it's in the ca- not in the toilet. I've dropped it in a million places, okay, and the case fine. keeps it. Now keeps it. you were suggesting to us, which I find scurrilous, that Jeff Bezos is doing something <laughs> that actually may be yet another invasion of our privacy. Can you defend your position, please, Andy Anko? I believe I can, Jim. Okay, I thank can. you. Yeah, so a few days, last week they announced that Amazon is going to be buying iRobot, which is the company that makes uh, the Roomba. Uh, Cambridge, smart, no? Right, or exactly. Yes, yeah. Uh, so the smart vacuum. And I really think this is a terrible, terrible move because Amazon, their whole business model is we want to learn as much about the consumer as possible. We want to have as fine-grained an idea of who everybody is and what drives them and what motivates them. And that's why they keep buying a lot of these other companies. They don't, they don't really care about being in the robot business. What they care about is that the, the iRobot, the Roomba, because of the thing, to make itself work, it has to build a map, a really detailed map of all of the rooms in your house so it can navigate around. So by buying uh, iRobot for $1.6 billion, they will be getting a detailed map of consumers' homes. And now they can tie that to other things it knows about them because of their buying habits through Amazon, things that it might have learned about it for, through uh, uh, the Ring doorbell, things they, bu- they bought, the, the, they, they bought uh, Wi-Fi routers by company by Eero, uh, and they already have uh, all these smart speakers. They buy, they, the other acquisition last week, they bought I- One Life Healthcare. So all of these companies oh, are providing pictures of data. data. Yeah. So They're who, protect- uh, healthcare data is protected, but it's still weird. What, what uh, uh, federal agency, if any, has the power to disallow such a purchase. Is there one? Yes. Uh, the FTC still has to, a lot of agencies still have to sign off on, on, on an acquisition this big. They're probably going to run into a little bit of trouble, 
because uh, the FTC, the chair, <laughs> famously, before she became the chair of the FTC, she wrote a research paper basically saying that Amazon are a bunch of uh, evil rat bastards and they should be broken up. Uh, there's a 3-2 Democratic majority in the FTC, and this really has antitrust screaming all about it. This, is, this isn't like... Well, I'm is this an antitrust issue or an anti-privacy issue? What's the anti... Uh, I mean, almost everything they buy... Well, One would argue they should never be able to buy anything because what Amazon does with everything they buy is eliminates all the competition. Not Well, it, it depends. Like, Google bought YouTube, okay? Uh, Google also bought the company that eventually became Google Maps. But they were tiny, tiny companies that really couldn't become what they are today without Google saying, we have a plan, we have resources, we're going to nurture and grow you. They, uh, Google added so much value to those companies. Okay. The, my difficulty with Amazon is that they just simply write a check, great, now we own Roomba. They will add no value to it. They aren't going to enhance it. They're not going to make it more useful to the consumers because of other technologies that they have. And as a result, it really is just a big data grab. And okay, they, I, I don't want to uh, belabor this, but just one last question. I, I understand they have the power to deny a merger or purchase if they believe it violates antitrust law, and obviously the company can sue them and whatever, so you don't know what the resolution is. Do they have the power to deny a merger or a purchase based on violation of privacy rights, or they do not? They do not. Uh, they're, okay. they're basically looking at what will this do to the market, and okay. if Amazon owns, uh, owns uh, iRobot, they will essentially own this entire market, and it will be, because they're also hooking it up to the biggest retailer in the world, it's going to be really difficult for any other maker of a smart robot or a lot of smart okay. appliances to compete. We're talking to Indian our tech guy. Okay, this is a really neat thing about musicians being able to uh, perform together when they're miles apart. Tell us about this. Yeah, this is super, super cool. Now, I, I, I can tie into some familiar experiences with everybody, especially like during COVID. You, you wind up having a talk with like your, your, your friends or your relatives, and everyone's interrupting each other and talking over each other. And one problem would be personality problems with the people in the conversation. They tend to interrupt. But let's, this is not, that's not this topic. But the other problem is latency, where uh, there's delays that are introduced in the, in the talk where you might think that this person has just paused, but actually someone else in the call has started talking, and now you're talking over them. And you can imagine that how impossible that, it, that makes it for if you are a, a cellist and your friend plays the piano or another friend of yours is a singer, and you're like, gee, we're, we used to sing together all the time, but now we're like hundreds of miles apart. It makes music impossible. So this one company uh, called Farplay, you can reach them at uh, farplay.io on the Internet, they created a video chat app that is specifically for removing almost the, the entire uh, latency problem to all these connections, so much so that... You can see in video after video after video, you can have musicians playing together in perfect synchronization. It takes like maybe 20 seconds to just f pull a few switches around, push a few sliders. The app really helps you to make sure that you've got this dialed in correctly. But once you've got it dialed in, like if I clap, if we go one, two, three, clap, we will all be clapping the hands at the same time. And it's Is it really free? Quite magical. Is it free? It's free for two people up to 45 minutes. Uh, it's a subscription basis if you want to have like more people, you want to play for longer, or if you want to record at like studio quality sound, which is something you can do. It's like five bucks a month or eight bucks, bucks a month, depending on the plan. You know, it, it's uh, when I read the thing, and we, Marjorie, and I watched the video uh, where yeah, there was really a neat. latency, as you really call neat. it, and then there was perfect synchronicity, if that's the right word. Probably isn't, but you know what I mean. When we started on Greater Boston, my television show, we started doing uh, remote shows at the beginning of the pandemic. 
one of the things that really put me over the edge, which made the show almost undoable and, in my view, almost unwatchable, was the latency thing. We'd be interviewing somebody on Zoom, and there was exactly what you described. We still interview people on Zoom, and the latency has totally disappeared, which led me to believe when I was looking at what you sent us last night that Zoom has solved the problem in the same way that uh, uh, Farplay uh, has solved the problem. Am I wrong about that? It's gotten much, much better. The difference between Zoom and Skype and whatever else and Farplay is that Zoom knows that, look, we want to give you the best connection, the best sound possible, the best video possible. We are willing to sacrifice synchronization a little bit if that helps the video and the sound because we know that people would much rather have a nice, clear sound. So, so it can be, the problem is that it can be variable. You're getting, you're getting a great connection now, but you're not necessarily guaranteed to get a great connection the next time. With Farplay really is like all we want to do is give you synchronized sound. We are even willing to sacrifice the video. We are willing to sacrifice the sound that you're hearing in your headphones if it means that you can, you can play piano and someone can sing from a thousand miles away and you can do a rehearsal uh, from uh, over the internet. It's sort of beautiful, by the way. If you watch the video and they do a comparison when people are trying to play with each other, so to speak, and it didn't yeah. work out, and then all of a sudden they do it with this far play, and it's actually quite. I, I have lots wonderful. of friends that used to. I, I, I play a couple of instruments and sing. That we used to you live. Off, we, also, we used to live together uh, or nearby. Wait a second. Kind of. What instruments do you play? And what that. kind of singing do you do? Uh, I play keyboard badly. I play ukulele adequately, and I'm a baritone that. I've been told really? pretty good. I can but believe I, you know, but I, that's, I, I flatter myself. Speaking of ukulele, which is not our topic, about a year ago I had on my show, what's Jake? What's his name? Oh, Jake. I, know the, I can't pronounce, I can't his, pronounce last name, his last name. Yeah. Have you ever heard the guy, Jake, what's his name? The, the ukulele young, player? It was the most, you know, you hear, you got, oh, Jim, you're going to have a ukulele yeah. player on TV tonight. Okay. And you say, oh, my God, do I, I have to do Jim. this? Yeah. The guy sure great. is like Jimi Hendrix okay. of the yeah. ukulele. Okay. It is unbelievable. I think, okay. I, I think if anybody if anybody Googles while my guitar gently weeps ukulele, ukulele? you will you will t- the first hit will be this guy Jake Jake whatever it's, it's, his it's name a, it's is. a Hawaiian last name and again I don't want to okay. be rude but it's like yeah he starts off and it's beautiful and then it gets more beautiful and more intense. Ukulele players they know exactly how to get emotion out of this little rinky dinky rinky dinky tourist instrument. It's a new frontier, new frontier. I'll investigate that, Andy Nako. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you, Andy. It's good nice to see you, Andy Nice to see you, you in Nako. person, looking terrific. Thank you very Thank much you. for being here. Andy Nako is a tech writer and Thanks, blogger. Andy. You can follow him on Twitter at Anako. That is I H N as in Nancy A T. K-O. Thank you very much. Or Thank you just go to ukulele.com and you can <laughs> find it as well under <laughs> I for le- not le- go. Leave a trail of ukulele pics. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. See you good. Uh, good uh, to see you, Andy. Coming up, I'm so excited about this. We're going to be talking to best-selling author and comedian Jesse Klein on her great and very, very funny collection of essays on motherhood at midlife. She is next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. We are broadcasting live as we do every Tuesday and every Friday from the Boston Public Library.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Mardrigan. In about 25 minutes, we're going to hear the beautiful music of Gregory Groover Jr., Max Ridley, and Tyson Jackson. So they're going to be at the Mission Hill Arts Festival uh, this weekend. Stick around for that in a couple of minutes. Uh, but first, we are joined uh, by Zoom by Jesse Klein. And by the way, I want to apologize for Marjorie in advance. Marjorie is going to fawn over this woman for I the am. next 20 minutes. I am. Every night I'm I get a text fawn. from Marjorie. Jim, have you read The Butterfly? <laughs> Jim, have you read Somewhere Over the... Enough already, Marjorie. In any case, Jesse, you know, is the showrunner for I'd Love That For You. She was the head writer on Inside Amy Schumer, former writer on Chappelle's show, Voices uh, Jesse on Netflix's Big Mouth. She's got a new... Fa- it is a great new book. Best-selling, I show myself, I, I'll Show Myself Out, Essays on Midlife and Motherhood, where she hilariously explores the trials and tribulations of raising a kid in midlife from the joys of potty trainings in a Starbucks stall, blasting Beyonce in the parking lot of Party City, and my favorite, thinking about how many seconds it would take her husband to find a new mate <laughs> once she's dead. Jesse, yeah. it's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. So, Thank you so much for having me. Our okay. pleasure. So, so before you get to talk here, Jesse, I'm going to fawn a bit. I'm going to tell you that my <laughs> oldest daughter just had a baby, and of course <gasps> she, she now realizes what I went through. <laughs> That's wonderfully validating. But the, the, she sent me um, this story that you wrote about the, you know, the, talking about kind of Odysseus' journey, you know, and it, that motherhood is kind of a heroic, uh, a heroic journey. And the reason I loved your book so much is because mothers don't get any credit for the trial and tribulations <laughs> of pregnancy, the trial and tribulations of childbirth, the, the physical, emotional, and, and everything else you go through after you have the sure. baby and the baby starting. So, so tell us, where did you get this idea about, um, and I think you're right, about mothers uh, as heroes? Um, well, first of all, thank you for all of those kind words. That means so much to me. Um, and yes, mothers don't, we don't get nearly enough credit. So if there's any mothers, please give yourselves a hand, <laughs> um, sitting out there. Um, you know, I, uh, by the way, I, the only I, people who just applauded were three fathers. Yeah. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't get it. But you know what? Just... And fathers are working hard too. Okay, um, fine. but you know, we'll, we'll, that's father's day. Um, the idea, um, I had been listening to an interview with Elizabeth Gilbert, actually, uh, while I was on the way to the supermarket to buy baby food. And she was sort of talking about how the hero's journey doesn't always have to look the way we imagine it to look through all of the archetypal hero's journey stories that we grew up with, which in popular culture are things like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, which mm-hmm. are about, you know, a a, a male going to essentially conquer something um, in a faraway place. And I just thought, uh, you know, what I'm doing feels hard in its own way. And, um, and that kind of, that was the germ. That was the little seed of the idea. By the way, if people recognize the name Elizabeth Gilbert Camp Place, Eat, Pray, Love was like the biggest thing yes. ever yes. when uh, she wrote not <laughs> too long ago. But what is yeah. heroic about it, though? I mean, you, you get into the nitty-gritty, which we don't really get into very much, but it's yes. so validating because you don't hear people talk about, you know, mothers are supposed to be saints. They're not supposed to talk about when they're at Starbucks on the floor or where they're going yeah. through these horrible physical moments with the baby or you're breastfeeding 24 hours a day and you can't even yeah. get up off the couch. I mean, why is it heroic? Well, you know, um, 
Joseph Campbell is the famous scholar who wrote, um, you know, wrote this very lauded book about what a hero's journey is. And um, I'll be honest, I, I didn't make it through the whole book, but I, you know, I go, I go, I Googled a lot. I Wikipedia a lot. I did spend a lot of time thinking about it. And if you boil down the thousand page book um, or something in that neighborhood, I, a hero's journey at its essence, kind of universally as it's understood is a story about someone who, in order to protect someone else, um, at great personal sacrifice to themselves, goes through a series of challenges. Um, and that person ends up different at the end of that series of challenges than they were at the beginning. And to me, I can't think of anything more than motherhood that is essentially that. You know, we are spending our 24 hour around the clock doing this thing that on the one hand, I guess to outside eyes looks very boring, but as any mother knows, especially with a young child, you know, an infant, the stakes are so incredibly high every second, you know, is, is my kid going to eat a penny and choke to death, those types of things. And so even though there's this kind of sense of banality to it all, you're on high alert and, um, and you are doing things that are extremely physically exhausting all of the time and really sacrificing your sense of self. Um, and so I just felt like I hadn't seen those details really explored um, on the page that much. That's the voice of Jesse Klein. Her latest is I'll Show Myself Out, Essays on Midlife and Mother. When Did you write this book last year for the most part? Uh, <laughs> when did you write it? Well, it took me uh, a few years oh. to write it. As, uh, yeah, but I, I wrote a lot of it during okay. 2020, during okay. the pandemic. So yeah. then let's update something. Uh, I had a feeling it was a couple of years ago. Are you married to a woman yet, uh, uh, Jesse? <laughs> are, are, no, you said that was a possibility somewhere in the future. So are I you or are you still the same guy? Or what's the deal? I refuse to rule out uh, you know, anything that might happen in the future. I, um, <laughs> I, know, I know several women who are in you know, marriages to men. And then, um, it came out the other side and met a gal. Yeah. I'm just saying, you know, I'm just saying that we're all fluid in some way and we got to go towards the light. <laughs> so not yet. So I, do you have your not book yet. handy, by the way, do you have your book? Near? I do. Could I you read? I, I, I have to say the thing that really put me over there, there's a, an essay, by the way, it's a series of essays. It wasn't it's a series clear. of essays, that's right. This one that was quite moving was, your husband will remarry five <laughs> minutes after you die. Could you, could, oh boy. could you read that? It's on page 120, 120, if you don't know. It's at the bottom. Could you read the two uh, scenarios well, you, that you, you write you about? Juxtapose, you juxtapose what you want to hear from your husband when you are on your deathbed with what you could hear from your husband <laughs> on your deathbed if, if he has a girlfriend waiting in the wings. So that's right. Okay. Sure. Okay. Thank you for the context. Um, I, yeah. Um, and I also just want to say, I. Well, this doesn't apply to everyone. It's just no. for comedy guys. But well, I don't know. It seems here. to here apply to everybody I know who's a, who's a widower. I mean, my God, they're coming over with the casseroles like a dozen a day. The body's barely even in the grave and they're running over. But anyway, that seems to be my we're experience. All, we're all doing our best. Um, I'll just read. I'll read. Please. Um, uh, still, even the most angelic among us probably wishes that if and when the time comes, the convo might go something like this. Dying wife. I'm dying. Husband. I'm just, dropped, I'm just dropped beyond words. Dying wife, I want you to know that after I pass, I want you to find love again. Husband, stop. I will never love anyone as much as you. You're the love of my life, and I 
weeping, weeping, and seed. Unfortunately, I suspect the conversation more often goes like this. Dying wife. I'm husband. I've met someone. Dying wife. What? Husband. Doctor, I think we should pull the plug. I know she wouldn't want to live like this. Dying wife. The surgeon is saying I have a really good chance at making a full recovery. Husband, she's hallucinating. She must be in pain. Pull the plug, doctor. I don't have time to argue about that. I don't have time to argue about this. I'm meeting my girlfriend in five minutes. Doctor, <laughs> sir, she's not plugged into anything. Okay. I love that. I love that. So did and you do what... your disclaimer at the beginning of that because you're taking a lot of heat from a lot of husbands after you wrote this thing? Where'd that come from? <laughs> I just am saying that, uh, you know, you make observations when you've written something and it's, yeah. uh, I, and, you know, but everyone's different. Everyone's different. But you, okay. do, you do point out, and I think you have a very good point, that women are cats and men are dogs. What do you mean by that? Um, you know, I think we probably all sort of know a guy again hashtag not all guys who um they just don't fare very well without a caretaker you know it's like the way you can leave a cat like for kind of weeks with just like kibble out yeah well i mean i'm not recommending that you should get a cat sitter but they they don't need very much they kind of take care of themselves they just need like a little food and water and i feel like you know dogs need constant attention they'll get into trouble without you there right and uh, you know i'm like when my grandfather passed my grandmother blossomed exactly (laughs) now i can live my life may he rest in peace and they had a very happy marriage but she but she did fine she was fine (laughs) Yeah. Hashtag not all grandmothers, by the way. I just Hashtag want to make no, that clear. Not, okay, not all clear. grandmas, not all grandmas. Okay, fine. Once again, I'm a lot older than you, but I've had this experience in my life when the husband does meet, go, go on to his uh, eternal reward, whatever. <laughs> m- women that have suffered from depression for 30 years suddenly snap out of it. Women that has like yeah. been battling their weight for 30 Was years. Was that, mo- that your lost, mother you're not, talking about? Not my mother, of course. Maybe <laughs> Hashtag not, my not my mother. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they suddenly lose 35 pounds. I mean, it is amazing. And then, and then husbands can't function. The casseroles come. And the first casserole they like, they marry her. Isn't that what happens? It happens sometimes for sure. Okay. We're, t- <laughs> we're talking to Jesse Klein. <laughs> The essays on midlife and motherhood, which I bought for my daughter right after I read the first one, I'll show myself. Yeah, she loves it. She loves it. Now, I love this, too. This is a touchy subject because people don't like, you know, we're not supposed to drive drunk and we're not supposed to get too drunk. But but there is a role for a little alcohol in the life of a young mother. So walk this tightrope, Jesse Klein, and tell (laughs) us what you said in defense of drinking. Yes, I wrote an essay called In Defense of Drinking. And I do start that essay out by saying there are certain things that are obviously never okay. That's driving right. drunk, the number one, driving buzzed at all, you know, all the caveats that's to right. clearly the health and safety of yourself and the people around you. Um, that said, um, I do think there is a, you know, a certain kind of hand wringing that happens occasionally in media about women mothers having like any kind of drink at all when they're around their children um there's all kinds of cliches about like wine moms and like it's kind of like something to be embarrassed about or funny and and in all seriousness you know I sort of to what I was saying before the level of kind of grading boredom that happens when you're taking care especially again of a very young child is so intense. And um, I think any parent, mother or father, who says that 
They don't sometimes get annoyed or feel like, God, I would rather be doing something else besides playing. Like, for instance, my son, who I love more than life itself. Of course, goes without saying. And, and what does it say in our society that I have to say that? Because <laughs> you should have to say it. But I have to say it. And it is also true, but he's, he, especially when he was very, very little, like two years old, is very obsessed with cars, matchbox cars, pushing yep. cars around the floor and particularly parking the cars. And he would want to play parking and he could play parking with these matchbox cars for five, six, seven hours at a time. That's not a joke. And, and that's every day. So every day times all those hours. And I'm just saying that for me, sometimes having a glass of wine, or for me, sometimes a, a little tequila over ice, an hour wonderful, four. Wonderful. Of, an hour four of pushing the cars around the floor helped me relax, helped me be present, helped me to sort of just enjoy the moment I was in. Well, I we think were, it's okay. We were talking the other day about um, uh, being good enough in all aspects of life. There was a story in the Atlantic. Yes, yesterday. it was a story yeah. in the Atlantic. And I think that's so true about being a parent. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to, you know, look like these women that you talked about. By the way, you complained about your hair. Your hair looks pretty good to me, Jesse Klein. So I don't know what's wrong <laughs> right with your hair. Right out of the shower. Yeah, right out of the shower. But, you, you know, that you, you were running around in some uh, – what were you wearing all the time when you ran into those women in the obnoxiously uh, perfect outfits <laughs> – the story you're wearing some long skirt or something like oh, that. oh yes for yeah. for two years after my son was born i wore uh, an ankle length skirt with an elastic waistband <laughs> by a company called splendid and i had two of them and one was gray and one was navy blue and i'm not exaggerating that's basically what i wore every day yeah with a with a button down top so i could uh, breastfeed that was what i wore well, th- there's a lot of competition among mothers. You're supposed to get right back into shape two weeks after you have the baby and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but the there's worst. a good enough quality that I think we forget, especially when there's so much written now about mothering and everything is on the app, you know, the app for when the baby goes to the gym, yes. the app for when you're breastfeeding, the app for when the baby's sleeping. All these rules and regulations that make you feel like you're not, you're not good enough you know what I mean I do know what you mean I mean if there's anything that uh to whoever my voice might be reaching at this moment just to say uh to any mom out there at this moment you're doing an amazing job perfect is an illusion there's no such thing and I think you know we all just need to give ourselves some grace um and to remember again this thing that I feel like society ignores and makes you feel like you know we like to kind of elevate like oh a pregnant woman is like a queen and then the minute she gives birth um it's like who are you you're boring and you're done and we're not interested in you anymore and I just um you're doing you are doing something heroic you're doing something heroic every minute and every day and um give yourself a break you know, Jesse Klein, uh, I know of you for years. I don't know you that well. I met you 10 minutes ago. Do you have any interest in showing your feet on Zoom for our audience <laughs> no, here at the no. library? Oh. Or, no? Jimmy, so, you oh, have wow. something in common. The Morton's oh. toe? No, first of all, I do not have Morton's toe. You've talked about this for <laughs> 25... What's Morton's toe? You don't know talking- Morton's toe. I think you call it in your thing, even though you said you didn't know what it meant. Hammer toe or some... Morton's toe... Why don't you get back to the topic, Jim? Okay. okay, okay uh, Morton's toe is a, it's not a condition. It's a thing where your second toe next to your big toe is longer than, than your, your big toe. Big toe. Now, oh, I do have that. Oh, you do? There you okay. go. Kind of, well, let's see him then, Jesse. And we can talk. No, in any case, you know. I don't think so. You know, even with my feet not being that great, I could charge a lot of money for that. I'm not exactly. That. Exactly That's my right. point. It's huge on our show. So the point. Put my that, son right through college. <laughs> 
uh, Marjorie has been ridiculing me because I do wear sandals from time to time with the Morton's toe thing. But you write a piece, and uh, there are a lot of people in this world. I don't want to use the word fetish on this show. There are a lot of people interested in feet. <laughs> well, you just did. And I did yeah. know, but I didn't mean it. Jim Hashtag not say fetish. No, that's actually not <laughs> totally untrue. Again. Okay, in any case. So uh, what's my point? Oh, my point was. I don't know. What You're happened lost. here? Is your point that it was the pregnancy that destroyed the. You never said your feet were beautiful. You say they no. were okay, but now they're ugly, I think is the word you use. Do you use the word ugly? Well, I can't remember. Whatever it was. Probably. What happened exactly? Do you know? <laughs> I, you know, I actually, um, I'm trying to make an appointment with a podiatrist uh, like the next week. No, I mean, I think maybe less the baby. I think like I did gain a lot of weight when I was pregnant and that yeah. kind of squishes your feet out. But um, I think it's more, uh, you know, I just turned 47. I think it's more just age wearing it down. It's yeah. like one of those things of aging where you're like, oh, it's this, this yeah. is happening. Um, it's kind of a this is happening feeling, which, you know, applies to a lot of stuff. It does indeed. Okay, th- this is kind of a cliche question, but I can't uh, resist asking it. By the way, I say, would introduce her again. This is Jessie Klein, and the book is I'll Show Myself Out, essay- Essays on Midlife and Motherhood. And she's been, like, on all these TV shows and written for SNL and written for all- Amy Schumer and all these people. So she's, like, a big star here. <laughs> but, I, but, I mean, you Not must, at all. You must have thought is. about... Um, if if, it, if the tables were reversed and men were the ones who became pregnant, gave birth, went through all the physical, horrible things that happen after you give birth and then we're raising the kids. What, what do you think it would be? You ever fantasize about what oh, we would think, well, the attitudes about pregnancy and childbirth if it weren't women that were doing it? Well, first of all, I just I can't help but bring to mind like that amazing Julia Louis Dreyfus line from Veep, where she's like, "If men could get pregnant, you could get an abortion at an ATM." <laughs> That's um, a good one, <laughs> which is so true. And I would say, yeah, I mean, just more more of that vibe. I think, uh, yeah, well, we would have all kinds of you know protections from our government, paid leave. You know, there would suddenly be a tremendous amount of empathy, I think, for the experience of what uh, having a baby is like. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think what I, I think we all know. I think we all know the answer to this. Well, you know, By the way, can I just say, because I want to give credit, well, I remember the Jimmy Louis Dreyfus line. The original line is a New York City feminist activist, Flo Kennedy, I've told you about this, oh. who said if men could get pregnant, abortion would be a sacrament, yeah. which was one of the greats. And this is a long but, time ago. But it's not just that. I used to run a lot when I was young, and I, I, I ran marathons. People always talk about, oh, my God, the grueling marathon, the grueling marathon. What a f- athletic feat that is. And then I had children, and I realized... What are they talking about? Heroic feat of physical <laughs> endurance? Are they out of their minds? You could run 10 marathons with less pain than you endure uh, having a baby. And I mean, now yeah. you can, it's better. You can get epidurals and all that kind of stuff. But it's a big ordeal. And I just think the physical experience that women go through is just kind of downplayed because it's women that are doing it. Yeah, I think... Um women are just sort of in general taken all of the stuff that women do that is incredibly hard work um as generally invisible and taken for granted um and hopefully 
that is something that could change uh, over time. Let and me just I, say, Jesse, one piece of advice, since you give some great advice in the book. If your book sales ever flag, hire Marjorie. Let me tell you, this woman. <laughs> oh, my God, Marjorie, you're oh hired. My She's God. already hired. She's yeah, hired. Well, I mean, you, I mean, I'm sure people it have told you this before. You, you remind me a lot of one of my heroes, Nora Ephron. You write a great oh, stuff. That's such and a nice compliment. Yeah, she, she absolutely is a genius. She's and, my hero. And I tell you, you're a genius, too. This is a great Book's book. Great. And everybody that's got a kid or had a mother or anybody else should buy this book because it's a riot. Here's one and, father um, who would recommend it, too. And you're very <laughs> honest, which is very nice, too. Jesse, so. it's great to meet you. Congratulations. Thank Thanks you so much. So we really much. appreciate yeah, it. We're be so well. glad uh, you could be with us. Thanks a lot. See you Thank later. Thank you both. Bye. Okay, we've been speaking with Jesse Klein. She's a comic TV writer, voice actor, and author of I'll Show Myself Out, Essays on Midlife and Motherhood. It is unique, and it is a riot. Uh, thanks again to Jesse Klein for being with us. Coming up, we're going to have continue our live Music Fridays. We're very excited about it. We're going to have the series with uh, our Friday series today con- is with saxophone player Gregory Grover Jr. from this summer's Mission Hill Arts Festival. He's going to tell us all about it, and we're going to hear music from his band. We're also going to be joined by the woman who's running the show. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brody and Marjorie live at the Boston Public Library, streaming at youtube.com slash GBHNews. This is what gets Marjorie and me through the difficult parts of the week, looking forward to <laughs> moments like this. There is no better way to cap off a Friday at the Boston Public Library than with our live Music Friday series. Throughout the summer, the Missionary Arts Festival has been bringing music, culture, and conversation to Roxbury's Tobin Community Center in the form of bi-weekly performances and audience dialogues with some of the city's best performances. Gregory Groover Jr. is the latest to perform at the festival. He'll be capping off the whole thing tomorrow night at 5.30 with his band, some of whom are with us today. He is also the assistant chair of ensembles at Berkeley. He'll tell us what that is in a minute. He's playing today with Max Ridley on the upright bass. Hey, Max, how are you? Nice to see you. And uh, Tyson Jackson on drums. Tyson, it's a pleasure to have you too. Thanks, gentlemen, for being here. Louisa Harris joins us as well. She's the founder of the Missionary Arts Festival, which is hosting its final event tomorrow at 5.30 again, the Tobin uh, Community Center near Roxbury Crossing. You can get tickets, and we'll tell you again at M. Heartsfest. MH. Heartsfest. Oh, I'm sorry. Of course. MHheartsfest.org. Uh, gentlemen and ladies, it's great to meet you all. Thanks so much for being here. We Thank appreciate you. it. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. Well, let's start with, with you, Louisa. Let's sure. just elaborate on what Jim said about the Mission Hill Arts Festival. How long has it been going on? What's the deal if people show up to, to, to see the action? Yeah, so um, it started last um, uh, 2020, basically, in April. Uh, when my husband and I, Kevin Harris, um, decided that uh, the artists needed some encouragement after being on the sideline for so long, and also people uh, encur- encouraging people to come out, you know, even if at a distance with masks, but just to see one another. So we proposed the idea to some of the local organizations, and they 
uh, responded well, so we started moving. The setup, it's exactly the same as last year, um, so six events throughout the summer every other Saturday, not free because we really want to um, help the community understand the value of a professional artist. And um, so the festival also has a purpose. Um, we, uh, last year, we gave them themes, basically. Last year was Inspire, because um, by being locked down for so long, you couldn't do anything, you couldn't move, and so forth. We want to encourage people to remember that we actually could do uh, things, be creative, and uh, this year was Interconnections. Simply because, the idea came from thinking about... Um, the Medici during the Renaissance, where they brought a lot of different talents, abilities, uh, way of thinking, and it kind of produced some innovation, some advancement, but above all, fluidity of thinking. Mm. And so interconnection is more about um, putting in the idea that actually connecting with people, it's necessary, even to strengthen your own idea, right? You can remain independent, and yet you know, validate your position or maybe change it a little bit or change it completely, you know, but by considering, I think, other people's perspectives or seeing through their eyes, you can find common purpose or solutions that may not have been available before. And um, I, I think the, the events that we proposed this year really respect that, uh, reflect that, like with Gregory, I think just the fact that he's presenting sacred music, so some people may see it just, you know, in one way, and yet he's going to offer a hip-hop perspective or a blues or a jazz, and just seeing how things that may look in a certain way could also have um, other um, options. You know, and I think um, if you think about, I don't know if you know, but from the very first... uh, event, we had uh, Matt Jensen, who is a reggae uh, artist, and Nyat is a white, tall guy from New Hampshire. Yeah, right? So you wouldn't put it together. Or, um, you know, Leo Blanco, a Venezuela pianist, who presented the difference that Western uh, music had on North America and South America. Just, again, to show that influences are healthy. Greg, let's talk to Gregory for a minute. You're nodding in approval. So (laughs) tell us, I mean, she just described this fusion thing that you do. Is that a decent word for what you're doing? Is that? I think it's a a great way um, to really uh, combine all the elements of our music um, and what we believe, um, particularly with Negro spirituals, right? So these are songs that are messages of hope, messages of freedom, and are multi-layered. Right? When you com- com- uh, combine all that and you infuse all that together, um, it really does create a powerful story that tells the story of our country and also of uh, our people. You know, when I've read about you, I've read, uh, seen two words regularly, gospel and jazz. And I have to say, well, I have no expertise in either. Yeah. Uh, I never think of gospel and jazz in the same sentence. You do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, they're both, you know, at the forefront of black American music. And the black American, uh, you know, community and culture, 
um, the vibrancy of how we, you know, intertwine and how do we relate to each other and how we commune with each other. Um, obviously, if you date back there, you know, you're looking at the black church, there may have been times where jazz obviously is seen as the, the secular music, mm-hmm. uh, but in its roots, in its format, in its uh, creativity, they influence each other. You know, ordinarily, if we, if we talk, and usually we can't wait for the music, and I'm yeah. having that urge right now, if it's okay with you. <laughs> yeah. Tell us, and you can join your partners in it. Sure. What are you going to play for us first? You're going to play yeah. two selections, yeah. one a little later. What are you playing first? Yes, yeah, so for b- both the songs that you'll hear today are from the new record that we put out last summer, the Negro Spiritual Songbook, uh, Volume 2, and this one's entitled The Message is the name of the album. Um, and What's the, first, the message? The message is that these songs continue. Uh, that they are songs that are spirituals. Um, they, they got us over and they, 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 they showed us a new day that we hoped and longed for. Uh, but these are still songs that we could still hold on to today that are applicable to what we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis that everyone can relate to. Once you join Max and Tyson while we talk to Luisa while you're setting up for awesome. a second, then All come right. back after you play and rejoin us Thank again. You. Thank you. know, Luisa, you, you uh, said a minute ago, and you got some applause when you said it, very intentionally... This thing about charging, uh, uh, which, and when I read about it, it made a lot of sense to me, even though I love free stuff too, especially arts. Explain why you made that decision. Um, I could ask you a question, uh, but um, I got to answer it first. So I think I don't have a problem with organizations who are receiving funding, right, mm-hmm. and offering. Um, a general mission to the public supported by that funding. So that's okay. But just the word free, it devalues the art and the artist, right? So the next time that an artist wants to uh, have a show or you know some kind of performance that is not supported by major funding, um, and they say, you know, my ticket is $40 you know, to... to you know, just they're professionals, so they should be compensated. And the person, of course, tends to say, well, no, okay, wait, it was free, so why do you charge now? So we are devaluing, you know, the professionalism of the artist. I, I think that's a perfect answer. I won't ask you how much tickets are in a minute for people. <laughs> I didn't mean that in an accusatory way. I meant it in a, just an explanatory way. Gregory Groover Jr. is on my favorite instrument in the whole world, the saxophone. As I said a, a minute ago, Max Ridley's on the upright bass, Tyson Jackson on drums. Gentlemen, take it away.
Gregory Groover Jr. on sax, Max Ridley on upright bass, and Tyson Jackson on drums. Gregory, come on back. We're a drop short on time, but we want to talk for another minute. Yeah, but I did want to ask. I did want to ask Gregory a quick question. I noticed when I was looking um, at your bio here that you went to Boston Arts Academy, you graduated yes. from there. And the reason I ask you that is you often hear about when cuts come in schools, the first thing that goes is like music. And I'm wondering if you were a little kid, or your parents helped you out, or did you learn your instrument at Boston Arts Academy? How did that happen for you? Yes, um, I would say community is a big part of music for me, and how I was able to matriculate through music. I have to first acknowledge my mom and father, who uh, both are lovers of music, and my sister, who's a musician as well, as well as my father, a pianist. They're both pianists, and I looked up to both of them. Um, my church family, musicians coming in and out of that all yeah. the time. And then the Boston Arts Academy, where I was able to study and learn about how to perfect my craft um, throughout uh, my time there, and the Berklee Preparatory uh, Academy, as well as Berklee College of Music, and tying it back into spirituals, the Hamilton Garrett Music and Arts Academy, which okay. is a program in Roxbury um, founded at my church, the Sword Charles Street Abbey Church, where they do specialize in teaching music through the lens of Negro spirituals. So I know that's a lot, but I, I do have to give each sector of that um, its credit. And I have one other question. Yep. You know, we, we, you, you hear a lot of Negro spirituals all over the place. A lot of them are in different hymns, different churches. Yeah. Are people still writing Negro spirituals, or is that something that was from decades and decades ago? Absolutely, yeah. They're, so they're definitely modern arrangers and composers of spirituals. Um, I think of someone like, you know, Mogus Hogan, who was taking these spirituals and, and, and showing us a new lens, uh, how they can be interpreted. How about you? But, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> the last thing, uh, for me, uh, my original compositions, a lot of them are based, the one you just heard, is based and rooted in the same... Um, elements of the Negro spiritual as well. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, Louisa, I started, I hate to get to the crass part, but it's not crass because no, you okay. made a beautiful uh, a statement about it. What does it cost to get to the festival this yes. weekend? Yes, and I will tell you, I just want to add one thing. I'm sure. not against, um, it, it, like I said, against events that can be open to the public. Sure. It's just the word free that the devoid the professional. We're with you. We're absolutely with you. Musicians like this don't right. get paid enough. <laughs> they Thank you. don't get paid enough. So. Well, no, but and I mean, I think the point you're making was like the BSO. We've talked to both Andres Nelsons and Keith Lockhart about going to Franklin Park. Their musicians are getting right. paid. And I don't mean that in a crass correct. way. That's the first thing you were talking about. That's correct. There are other settings where people are not, which makes so, total... So, just so what are the, the tickets? The complimentary word. It's better got than it. free. What, Greg, but, um, do you want to rejoin your uh, fellows again? Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, and thank you all. No, we're going to play another tickets. I know go, we are in a yep. second. Yeah, that's okay. why he's going back. Tickets go from uh, zero for uh, very small children um, to um, $40 for front seat. So the general admission is... $20 or 10 for seniors and um, students. And again, so it's, it's very affordable. MHArtsFest.org, because I blew Correct. that a few minutes ago. Do you want to do a tease for Monday, and yeah. then we'll have these we'll, gentlemen we'll play do, us out? Okay, we'll do the tease for Monday. We're going to be joined by former Rhode Island Governor and current Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo. We're very excited about that. We're going to have Michael Curry from the NAACP and Mass League of Community Health Centers, our food writer, Corby Cummer, and the Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price, plus mm-hmm. Charlie Sennett from the Ground Truth Project. So it's going to be a loaded up uh, Monday. I want to thank our crew, as always. Thank you very much to them. Cybertel, Rob Fagnett, the engineers here today. And I want to tell, am I going to identify this group now? I think you do it one more time. because I'm going, going to do it yeah. one more time because we are going to listen up next. I think it's Jerusalem. Is that the, what we're going to be hearing next? Is it Jerusalem? Yep. Okay. Um, and this is from Gregory Groover, Jr., 
on the saxophone, tenor sax, Max Ridley on the upright bass, Tyson Jackson on drums. And tomorrow night, 5.30, they're all going to be rounding out the Mission Hill Art Festival at Roxbury's Tobin Community Center. To get tickets, you go to M. Hearts... Nope, I did it too. MH Arts Fest. MHArtsFest.org. Or Eventbrite. MHArtsFest.org. Or, or Eventbrite. Eventbrite. Great. Or Eventbrite. Okay. Louisa, great to have you too. Gentlemen, Thank you. one more time if you would. Thank <laughs> you.